whenever I'm on Skype, I'm reminded that <clears throat> I have this picture of myself on here. <laughs> it must be like 15 years old. I don't know. <laughs> it's not a, uh, not a very accurate rendition. Yeah, you know, it's it's funny. We have you you and I have never met in real life, but we are we are Facebook friends. So I guess that counts for something. And you have uh, you have the, the your Facebook picture has a little bit more gray. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'm catching up with you, right? <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks for reminding me. Um, <laughs> hey, uh, Ben, so we, we have a, a special guest uh, on the podcast today that you don't know. <laughs> I know. It's a surprise, surprise guest. All, surprise. all I knew was, yes, <laughs> hey, uh, all I knew was like, uh, Hey, we're going to record, and uh, someone and someone's coming. So, so here I am. I've done I've done zero zero prep uh, <laughs> in, in preparation for my surpre- special surprise. So, so let me let me take a minute and introduce our, our special guest, and um, and then and then we'll let him introduce himself. But so I, uh, we were just talking about so so uh, our our guest uh, today, Ben, is uh, Daniel Jalkett, and and he, he and I have never met, although I I have I have a very distinct memory. Of hearing him on a podcast, and I don't, I don't even remember who he was talking to, but I have a very clear memory of where I was when I was listening, and it was we were doing, uh, Ben, we were doing the the challenge study um, uh, workshop in Chicago, and I was walking along whatever that road is out there in Rosemont, and I remember hearing hearing Daniel talk about being a developer. So, so a little bit about about uh, Daniel, which I've quickly cobbled together from from the internet. So. He is the uh, founder, uh, Ben, of Red Sweater Software. Um, he uh, he is Daniel Punkass on Twitter, where apparently he is a punk ass. So, if, Ben, if you're not following him, you you should because I am. I he's, am. He's a lot of fun to follow. Um, and actually, I didn't I didn't realize this, Daniel. Uh, before you uh, f- uh, founded uh, Red Sweater, you actually worked for Apple, uh, which I guess I maybe sort of knew, but but it wasn't until I saw your um, about page on. Red sweater that I realized that. Um, uh, ben, he has a blog at uh, bitsplitting.org, and he also does a, a podcast, which I have to confess I have never listened to, but but other podcasts that I do listen to have talked about it, and that uh, and that is the, the podcast <laughs> called Core Intuition uh, that he does uh, with uh, Manton Reese, who's another person uh, that I know from uh, of of from the internet, but but also have never met. So, um, Daniel, did I did I miss any uh, high points? That's a pretty good. You made a pretty good uh, assessment, pretty good synopsis, especially for somebody who has not listened to Core Intuition. Yeah, nice, nice. And I have uh, you're you're very Googleable, so I can I find I've found some stuff on on the uh, on the interwebs about you as well. Yes, this is Internet Safety Talk, right? Internet Safety Talk. Yeah, yeah. This is where where each week we have a a, a surprise guest and we uh, try to figure out uh, what their bio is. No. <laughs> well, but here's the thing, Ben. If if Daniel had been born Daniel Smith or Daniel Jones, I would wager you would have a lot harder time finding him. Yes, that's true. <laughs> no, no doubt about it. No doubt about it. Cool. Well, da- Daniel, welcome. Um, and uh, uh, hopefully um, you're you're excited to be on Food Safety Talk. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to be on this program. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I am excited. I actually have to confess that I have not listened to this program until this week. And wow. so I did some catching up. Um, I didn't quite make it all the way through your most recent episode. <laughs> I thought you but, were going to say uh, you haven't made it through all the episodes. <laughs> I, I think I got I think I got to um, 
I think I got to uh, flushing out the backlog, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, it was, I, I have to say, it was very interesting. I think this is going to be uh, a, a good program for me because it is nerdy in a way that I can relate to. And I think I just didn't know that um, food safety might be a topic for me. Cool. Awesome. <clears throat> well, good. Well, I mean, usually, um, and I don't know how much, uh, you and, and, uh, Don have talked about, um, what, what our plans for an episode would be, <laughs> uh, if, if any, but usually when, um, when we do have people, uh, come on, um, who are, you know, quote from the normal side of things, not the food safety, uh, nerds in, you know, in our, our weird world of microbiologists who sit around, um, chastising each other about eating raw oysters. If someone at the table orders them, um, we usually, we usually kind of like open it up and, and, and see if there's any, uh, burning food safety questions, um, that, that come to mind, uh, to, to get us started. Um, but Don, if you, if you guys had another, uh, another plan, um, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears no, uh, again. I'm, no, I'm, surpri- I, I'm, I'm surprised. <laughs> I'm no. sufficiently surprised. <laughs> no, I think, I think the plan was, um, uh, you know, Daniel should ask us, uh, questions about food safety, which is our typical go-to. Although I'm, I'm wildly curious about what it was like to, to work at Apple back in the day, but this, this is not, this is not a tech podcast. I mean, this is a food <laughs> safety Apple podcast. Safety so yeah. You know what? We could have an Apple safety talk, like, like about literal <laughs> safety Apple. of apples. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's say I could try to tie in some kind of like food left in my office for a certain number of days or the Apple cafeteria hygiene program. Um, but I did make a list <laughs> Uh, I made a list of some questions or talking points, and um, my only anxiety about this list is you've been doing this show for a while now, so I imagine you've gotten a lot of questions that might be – there might be some duplication here. So we'll leave it up to you all right. what, to, yeah. what to do. So the first issue at the top of my list – you ready for this? Oh, ready yeah. to get going ready, with this? Ready. Uh, this might be a Don question because um, – one of the things I did hear in the recent review of the podcast was um, about lettuce hygiene and about discarding uh, damaged leaves, right? Yep. Because uh, they might be harboring some kind of bad badness. So I have kind of the inversion of that question, which is there's debate among some people in my family whether you need to wash the leaves inside a tightly bound head of lettuce. Ooh. See, now I th- I thought you were going to go with wash d- do you need to wash leaves from pre-washed uh, uh, salad, which 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 has been a question before, and it, and it's answered uh, by some colleagues of ours that wrote a paper about that. But but you know the question about in a tightly wrapped head is in fact not a question that has come up. And so what? So let me let me start by answering the question about like what do I do? So I am I am the uh, uh, chief <laughs> chief lettuce washer of the family. So it's my it's my job to make the salads and wash the lettuce, and I I will uh, rinse uh, every leaf. Um, and, and, and what I've found, it really depends upon, well, it may depend upon the store and, and the quality of the produce that's sourced by the store. But what I've found is that even in the innermost leaves, at least again, depending, it varies from head to head, but in the innermost leaves, there may still be some, some dirt and grit. And it really depends upon probably, you know, the production practices on the farm. And so, um, as a, as a best practice, I will try to, uh, rinse every leaf, um, 
But I also realize from a microbiological perspective that that's not accomplishing much, right? It's really, it's more about aesthetics, right? It's about removing any insects that might have worked their way in there. It's about removing dirt and grit because, you know, I don't, I don't like to have dirt and grit in my salad. It's not necessarily about food safety. So, so that's, that's what I do. And I would say, you know, from a, from a, food safety perspective it probably doesn't matter um if it's if it's pretty tightly bound and it doesn't look like there's visible dirt um you probably don't have to wash it but um you know uh <laughs> i don't i don't think it's and well i do i i do think i'm trying to remember whether th- this might have been something that we looked at um, and maybe never published, but uh, as you get progressively towards the center of a head of lettuce, I think the bacterial counts on the leaves do uh, do go down. But again, don't don't quote me on that. So so from a from a, and this is talking about a, a, a general micro perspective, not a food safety micro, right? Because we, we there's a lot most of the bacteria we eat are, are neither good nor bad, right? They just sort of go into our gut and, and probably mostly pass pass right through. So that's that's my answer. Ben, do you have a different perspective? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I'll just add to that. I think I'm, I'm right, right with you um, on on the approach. I, I do something pretty similar. We we actually choose. We don't eat a lot of um, head lettuce, and mainly from convenience standpoint. And um, but I I do know. Um, that uh, for when we look at sort of outbreaks and illnesses that have been linked to lettuce, um, the pre-washed, um, you know, pre-washed, triple-washed bag lettuce appears to be um, linked to these illnesses more than than the head you know than head lettuce uh, is, and it and it likely has to do mostly with the facilitation of the movement of the pathogens during the washing process. And head lettuce, not all head lettuce is going to get washed or rinsed or submerged or handled in the same way um, that um, that you would expect in in a bag lettuce. So so I think it's probably like if I was to compare the two, I'm probably purchasing, uh, the, uh, I guess riskier type of, uh, of lettuce. And that echoes something that, um, that a colleague of ours, um, Mike Doyle, um, who, uh, has, has Mike has recently retired, I think from the university of Georgia, um, during outbreaks, you know, he's often, um, interviewed on, uh, on popular press, and and that's one of the things that he says is, oh, I you know I, I don't eat the the bag lettuce. I choose to to eat head lettuce. Um, so the, you know that's that's one one perspective. I guess the the thing um, on you know tightly. Uh, tightly wound or tightly not, I guess not wound, but you know, tightly held uh, um, uh, lettuce uh, is I've, you know, I, I think we, we can find this for show notes. I've definitely seen literature to what Don's talking about is you're less likely, even, even if you are trying to contaminate that lettuce, you're less likely to find it closer to the middle just because of the way the water flows and, and where the pathogens um, you know, like to be. Um, but I think that, the hardest part as just a normal person in the, in the world of, uh, of buying stuff at a grocery store is I can't really tell whether the head of romaine that I'm purchasing has been washed or not. And that really is going to impact 
would impact the answer to the to like to the question because if it's if it has been washed then I'm I'm doing what what Dawn's doing with much more care and I'm going to try and rinse off anything that might have been carried through the um the the um the layers of the uh, of that head uh, but if if I know it's not it has not been washed then I'm just going to remove the couple of layers of the outside and and then just do a, a cursory rinse of it um, but. But yeah, I mean, I don't know if that um, if that gets to well, your to your well, to your well, answer to your question. Before before we put a, a, a cap on this, let me let me also say that um, some research by a colleague of ours, uh, Maria Brandle from um, uh, UC Davis uh, and uh, uh, or sorry, UC Berkeley and or well, sorry, the co-authors from UC Berkeley and she's from ARS uh, in Albany, California. She has a paper entitled "Leaf Age as a Risk Factor in Contamination of Lettuce with E. coli 157H7 and Salmonella enterica," and what she writes in the abstract of this paper, which blows my mind, the population side was population size was consistently tenfold higher on the young inner leaves than on the huh. middle leaves. And and apparently, and I have obviously haven't digested the whole paper, but it, it seems to come down to more nutrients on those inner leaves. And so um, maybe, oh. may, so that's for sure, that's counterintuitive, but obviously these are, these are also uh, lettuce heads that have been deliberately inoculated with pathogens. And so Clearly, it's not nearly as simple as we thought, Ben. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the, the the sort of crux of the argument uh, from the folks I know who believe it is perfectly safe to eat the interior leaves is that somehow the way that the lettuce grows is like inside out, so that you know, um, right, kind of right. like, like the center of a tree sure. should be should be safe, right? Sure. Um, <clears throat> but now I have this vision. Don, um, I'm going to be, this is going to be something that's going to stick with you for the rest of your life now. Um, and every time you eat a Brussels sprout, you're going to be thinking, well, now why don't I open and wash each individual leaf of this? Yep. Right. Yep. yep. No, and I, and Daniel, I don't, I don't know how well you know me, but I love Brussels sprouts and they are one of my favorite foods. Fortunately, most of the time, uh, Brussels sprouts I am cooking, whereas uh, romaine or other, other head lettuce I am not cooking, but, but yeah, no, it's, it's a, you make a really good point. Um, you absolutely make a good, a good point. Uh, we don't, we don't open and wash the inside of our Brussels sprouts generally. <laughs> well, and and I think it comes back to you know one thing that, that Don mentioned r- briefly, which is if I was to take apart that head of lettuce and, and wash it off, I might not even do a really good job removing any pathogens anyway. Like I may have, I may have a, a, a small effect, but I'm not getting it to um, a, a risk reduction step similar to, to cooking. I might, you know, I might take, I might take 90% of, of what's there off at, at the most. Um, and, and and it's really just about removing grit in in the first place. So so I guess the the question that I'll put back to you, Daniel, is um, if, if what is it that you're trying to do? Is it are you trying to make it safe? <laughs> or are you just trying to get rid of grit? Because if you're trying to get rid of grit, then do it all you want. <laughs> but if you're trying to make it safe, it might yeah, not- you know what the 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 scenario where this has come up for me most has been with iceberg lettuce, right? Because it's such a tightly bound. Yep head of lettuce and frankly it's kind of more annoying to wash it is. than than uh romaine or similar lettuce so uh 
it's kind of one of these things where I tend towards the like more paranoid, wash everything, be super careful. I'm the kind of person who washes the avocado before you cut it open because, you know, I don't want the skin stuff to get in mm. with the knife. Mm. Um, but some of the people in my <laughs> proximity <laughs> um, would definitely skip that step. And uh, so I'm just kind of – it's one of those things where I just wondered if you happened to know if there was some magic about the way that lettuce grows that did ensure that. Like, you, you know, but, but I, I agree. I want to get the grit out too. So if the grit is in there, I want to wash it out. But if – the interior is somehow like food safe, um, and in the case, as in the case of iceberg lettuce, it doesn't. It really seems unlikely that any grit would be in there. Um, then maybe I'm going to skip that step. I don't know. I'm kind of mm. on the fence. Yeah. Well, and so an iceberg, I would say, is a special case, right? Like I've been sort of thinking conceptually romaine, but iceberg is definitely diff- different. And I, I do love uh, like a wedge. A wedge salad, which would you know, with with iceberg lettuce and and you know blue cheese and tomatoes and stuff like that. So that that is a really that's a really good salad for me. And I wonder if they're when they're making that, if they uh, do in fact uh, they do in fact wash it. And we also know from foodborne disease outbreaks. Um, I'm trying to think if there have ever been any outbreaks on iceberg lettuce. Um, on I'm a, looking. Uh, yeah, I'm looking right now. Yeah, because yeah. because best, best sh- minds are on this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, too, like proximal minds are on it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, and you know people have certainly studied iceberg lettuce. Um, we we know that you can you know bacterial bacteria will contaminate it, and and if you chop it up, uh, you know the, the, the there's a lot of moisture in iceberg lettuce, and that will facilitate the growth of bacteria, which increases the risk. And so, for sure, people have studied it. But the outbreaks are much more likely to be uh, with romaine. But then when you're when you're looking at that though, you have to kind of factor in what are the relative consumption levels, right? So for example, um, you know. People People get listeria from cold smoked fish, uh, but we don't see a lot of cases because we don't eat a lot of cold smoked fish. So, so, uh, but uh, you know, iceberg I think used to be the go to lettuce, but these days um, maybe it's uh, certainly it's sold, and, and certainly I'll, I'll we we don't ever get it in in my house, but I will get it. Like I said, when I go out to eat, I'll get it in a in a wedge salad, or it might come in a in a pre made salad from from somewhere yeah. else. But did you find anything, Ben, in terms of outbreaks? I did. No, you you talked enough that I found something. <laughs> uh, perfect. Good work. But, yeah, but. But here's, I mean, and this, this, this uh, maybe um, muddies things a little bit. There, ha- there has been at least one outbreak linked to iceberg lettuce, but it wasn't whole head lettuce. It was shredded yep. iceberg yep. lettuce, and and so, so now we have a situation of um, not, you know, re- trying to reconstruct this and, and figure out well what was the risk factor. Um, it would be really hard to parse out whether it was that tightly. Uh, held internal contamination versus something that was happening in washing and the removal of the outside and, and slicing. So I don't. I mean, I don't think it really answers answers the question. I couldn't find anything on just like head of iceberg lettuce um, being linked right. to um, to illnesses. And this is well, the. I, th- I think this is the Canadian outbreak, Ben. This this is it. Yeah, I just text, texted you a uh, little, little message there. Thanks. Yeah, Canadian out- outbreak of E. coli one five seven H seven associated with lettuce served at fast food chains in the Maritimes in Ontario, Canada, December two thousand and twelve. I think we can just blame Canada for that one, Ben. It's not. Yeah, <laughs> it's not the lettuce. <laughs> Look, let me let me bet bet you that there is no lettuce growing in Canada, iceberg lettuce growing in Canada, in December two thousand and twelve. <laughs> how, how can you be sure? 
I'm pretty sure on this. I know, I know my, uh, I know my Canadian geography, uh, <laughs> on, on this. Um, uh, uh, although E. coli was not detected, let me reading from the conclusions, although E. coli 157 was not detected in the lettuce, the weight of epidemiologic and traceback evidence was strong in implicating lettuce as the likely source resulting in a recall of lettuce products from importer slash processor X. Um, and I'm, I'm very sure that processor X is not the name of the actual company. <laughs> Although that would be a cool name, um, so yeah, I think uh, I think we can uh, be clear on on iceberg lettuce not growing in Canada at that time of year. <laughs> well, I think actually the the point Don made about the wedge salad is probably like it's proof in a way that the interior of the head lettuce in the case of iceberg is safe because you can't. You can't pull it apart and wash it and then put it back together again, right? So, right, right. Um, well, so if this were a problem safety-wise, then these wedge salads would probably be outlawed. Well, yes, but we, so we, one of the things, what it's we we if you listen to the way Ben and I talk, we don't ever say something is safe, right? Uh-huh, what we can uh-huh. say is that there's no there's no evidence that would suggest a significant risk. Obviously, you could imagine a scenario where they could there could be an outbreak, and certainly this particular iceberg lettuce was associated with an outbreak, but it was it was not head lettuce, right? But you're you're absolutely right. I mean, and we do we have had. I think we have had outbreaks linked to head lettuce, but it is much more likely to be um, the 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 bagged uh, you know pre-washed type that that causes uh, that causes the risk just because of how that's handled and the potential for you know contamination and and cross contamination and maybe even temperature abuse during distribution et cetera et cetera. But so uh, so I don't think we can say it's safe, but what we can certainly mm-hmm. say is that the evidence suggests that it, there if there is a risk uh, it. We don't. It's not. It's not risen to the level where we we see it. And yeah, and you're and, and I'm not sure it would ever be outlawed, but, <laughs> but we yeah. leave, leave it up to the FDA. But <laughs> well, but but they might not recommend it as a best practice, which clearly um, you know they do because people eat these every day, right? Right, right. And I think that's one thing. I mean, um, that that we that Don and I probably gloss over a lot because we're because we're close to this world and we don't really talk about how. Um, how FDA or USDA makes decisions on what they recommend and what they what they don't recommend, and and I'll, I'll um, when you mention you know this idea of a wedge salad um, and that someone allowing it to be on the on the market is a is a good example of um, a you know determination of risk. We do there are quite a few foods that we that that FDA also allows to be on the market that that we know have been linked to multiple 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 outbreaks, and this is one that. Don and I have talked about on on uh, podcasts before, but something like raw oysters, um, and you know there there are uh, a variety of pathogens that that have been linked to um, uh, to that that food. Um, probably the most. I guess severe uh, is a, a bacterial infection um, the, uh, caused by uh, uh, different types of Vibrio um, bacteria. But you know, so so we handle it. I mean, you can go. I I can go like less than a mile from where I'm sitting right now and probably find raw oysters in two or three restaurants um, right now. We we handle that risk with a, um, a message to consumers of hey, be aware that there's a risk of foodborne illness associated with it. And and we don't. I mean, we obviously don't do that. With, um, with, with fresh fruits and vegetables, um, but but it's it's one of these like, I, I think for us, 
in the, in the nerdy world, it's an unsaid thing. Like I, I would always assume that there is a small risk that I'm going to get sick from foodborne illness from, from any type of lettuce or any, um, fresh fruit and vegetable. And I'm at an increased risk of getting sick from, uh, you know, a similar pathogen, uh, from, uh, from, uh, raw oysters or, or eating an undercooked hamburger or, or whatever. So we don't, we actually don't often, um, outlaw stuff. Like, like there's, there, there are very, very few examples of that, which is mm-hmm. something that I think we, we see, but I don't think we communicate that really well. Like, I don't think we, we, we don't, we don't, I, I don't think it's well, I don't know, well known outside of the our nerdy world. Yeah. I think, I guess the thing I was thinking of is, um, I, I distinctly remember I'm a vegetarian, so this doesn't really affect me, <laughs> but I was I just going to add that. Yeah. I distinctly remember, um, <clears throat> you know, kind of an outrage in California when I was growing up. I think they had a law about rare cooking meat rare. Yeah. Sort of like outlawed a certain rareness of of meat. Um but yeah, that's a really good point. And I think it's fun fun, funny and smart that the food safety talk refuses to talk about <laughs> the safeness of food. <laughs> It's just, it's just kind of ironic, right? Like, that's, yeah. Jeez, I just realized that. Wow. Yeah, welcome that's... to the Food Safety Talk, where we talk about everything, but <laughs> what's safe. Actual, what's safe. Actually, what's safe. Yes. <laughs> that's a good, yeah, good call. Good call. Um, yeah. Uh, he, well, and, and it's, it's one of the, you know, one of these things as Don, as Don mentioned, I think that um, often the public discussion around food is, is in absolutes, right? It's safe or it's not safe. And and the reality is, it's a mathematics game. It's uh, we're 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 constantly trying to weigh risk and what is. And this is what you know. When I came back to you and, and asked, you know, what's what's your goal? It, we we kind of decide. Okay, these are the things that are most important. Um, is it there? Is it not there? What's the chance that it's going to be there? And, and what is you know what what are the um, what are the probabilities? And and it's always it's never zero, right? Like it's it's always some some fraction and uh. uh uh, it, 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 there's a possibility out there, even in our safest, safest, safest processes. And, and everything that we see in the regulation is about trying to reduce those risks. And, and I, you know, another thing that I think are, um, uh, yeah, as we're on this, this kind of topic, the, the food industry, as much as there, there will be always, uh, always be sort of like a, um, question around regulation versus, uh, a, a food industry or a food company being able to self-regulate, um, from a safety standpoint, they, they have a lot of incentives to not make people sick as well. So oftentimes, and again, this isn't every business, but I'd say that the folks that we, that Don and I run in the same circles as they're taking, um, what's in the regulation as the, the minimum, uh, you know, uh, baseline of what they should be doing. And, and they're really trying to go ab- above and beyond that because, um, that baseline doesn't, you know, it may not protect their business enough. Um, but yeah, no, we, uh, this is, this is clearly, it's just, it, we should just change it to food risk talk. <laughs> oh, but that's, that doesn't sound as good though. Risky, <laughs> that's right. Risky food business. Risky food business. Yeah. And then, <laughs> then we'll just have, um, what's the, uh, what's the Tom Cruise, uh, uh, song, uh, old time rock and roll. That'll be our new, uh, <laughs> a, a, a bump music. And, and we can have, we can take pictures, Ben, of you and I sliding across the floor in our socks wearing oh, yeah. our underwear. <laughs> that would be great. You have to be like diving to catch the uh, what was the thing? He was some kind of glass bowl or something. Yeah, yeah and you'll yeah. be diving to catch like a head of lettuce. Perfect, perfect. <laughs> That's it. 
This is it. When we do, when we do our Netflix show, this is what it's yeah. going to be. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, okay. So you you've got a list of questions, but I got I have a question for you. Oh yeah, great. Okay. Yeah. So when when you think like you know Don and I talk about food safety on Food Safety Talk all the time. Yeah. We do. We do. Um. But one of the, one of the things that I think we um we take for granted uh, also in in our discussions um is what food safety means so so i'm always i'm always curious when i talk to someone who's outside of our our nerdy world when when someone says you know food safety what is that like what does that mean to you what does that mean to you when you're when you're eating something or making decisions on where you're going to purchase food from like what do you what are you concerned about yeah, that's well. It's I should say first. I'm probably a little bit biased because I did listen to one of your episodes, and it gives me an interesting perspective from a from a nerdy kind of point of view. Things like the risk mitigation aspect to this is I find that interesting. Um, but you know, uh, before I, I can say with certainty that before listening. Even before listening, um, I probably did have a little bit more of a binary view of safe or not safe, mm-hmm. and um, but it was all wrapped up in um, spoilage or you know bacteria or you know some kind of like um, for so for example, somebody could think like that food safety meant whether it was healthy for you or not. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't I didn't I didn't have that perspective on it. I did have the contamination, infection, uh kind of like make you sick, get E. coli, whatever perspective on food safety. But I thought it was interesting, for example, um that you were talking about the broken glass issue, right? And that's mm-hmm. not something I would have associated with food safety per se. Um, so I guess coming into it, I was really thinking pretty much on the infectious agents, not like, not like physical contamination. Cool. I, one, you, one of the things that, um, you know, neither Don and I are, are toxicologists and, and I think we, we often get into, um, different types of discussions when it comes to like exposure to, to chemicals and long-term health effects. Um, you know, where, where we really, our wheelhouse is, is around acute illnesses that, that are not acute illnesses, but acute right, right. Uh, uh, illnesses that, that are, you know, they're linked to some sort of, um, contamination that leads to an infection or, or has a toxin in it that was created by that, by that bacteria. Um, but, but, but it's, um, it always like and you know when I when I talk to to people in in my personal life who who aren't doing food safety on a on a day to day basis I I think that I, I take that part for granted like I'm really I, I really try to um, when I when I speak or when I'm working with with someone new for the first time in a food safety capacity, I really try to like focus in and say, you know what, what I, my bias, my real focus is on this microbial stuff. And, and you, you may have questions about like pesticides or, or GMOs or organic production, um, practices. And I, you know, that's, that's not an area that I, that I focus on as a, as a food safety concern, um, in a, in, in a holistic way, what, you know, where it comes down to is, oh, by, by, using those, those chemicals, how does that impact the microbes and, or not? And, right. and that, that kind of, that kind of issue. So it's, it, it's, you know, it's, it, I, I, 
the, you know, the reason why I asked the question is because like, I think we, you know, we've got our little blinders and, and silos on and, and sometimes we're, we're missing what other people are perceiving as food safety issues that may be real food safety issues, but not something that we're, that we're interested in, or we talk about all that much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. That's a good, that's a good, that's a good caveat. Cool. All right. Well, what else? What do you? What else you got on your list? I got set up so many exciting things on my list. <laughs> <laughs> um, here's a good one. I think uh, this is a good example of the way my my paranoid brain works. And this is maybe not a food safety issue because there's no food involved, and there are no contaminants involved except for I guess exposure to air okay. and exposure to my own mouth. The question is, how long can you keep using a water glass without washing it? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, no, this, this has come up before from, from listener feedback. But it was in the context of, well, <clears throat> uh, somebody wrote in to say, I <clears throat> keep a glass of water on my bedside table overnight. And is it okay uh, to drink from that um, uh, glass the next morning? I think that was the context mm-hmm. of it. And, 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 uh, and I, I shared that, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's fine. I mean, if you're, if you're healthy you, uh, and you're healthy the next morning, uh, there's very little chance that something nefarious is going to fall down out of the air into your water. <laughs> and even if it did, probably wouldn't the risk wouldn't you know elevate because there's nothing in that water to support the growth. Now maybe maybe there's not to get too too graphic, but maybe there's a little backwash there, and so there might be some nutrients. But again, probably in the grand scheme of things, little risk. So I I would say um, you know, and I think and this is a great question, right? Because this is something that that I think about every every day as well. And I'll tell you what my what my normal uh, practice is. I will get up in the morning, uh, take the dog for a walk. Um, uh, feed the dogs and then cook myself breakfast and I will sit down and I'll have uh, usually a, a big a big glass of seltzer and then I finish that glass but I will leave that glass on the table because I know I'm going to if I'm working from home that day I know uh, I'm going to I'm going to come back and have another glass of seltzer with lunch and so I don't wash the glass because that would that would be wasteful right um, but then usually by the end of the day um, I'll put it in the dishwasher so but that's but that's not that's that's so that's what I what I do but I think in terms of risk it's really again it comes down to more like what's your tolerance for your own grossness right like like <laughs> like and if you're if you're okay with drinking out of the glass that you've been drinking out of for a week well you know more power to you i guess now and this has also come up in the context we've had we've had questions about water bottle safety yeah. And in fact, people periodically there'll be some you know television station doing an expose on the dangers of water bottles, and you know, and and when they'll go out and they'll swab a bunch of water bottles in a completely unscientific way, and they'll uh, you know horror of horrors discover that there are bacteria on water bottles, uh, and like, well, so what? You know, we we knew that. So so that that's my that's my long answer that where I didn't really answer your question. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, and I'll try and answer your question. I, on this, on this water one, I remember, um, we, you know, the feedback that we had, I think either you and I both did an interview on this town somewhere. And I, I'm trying to find the quote. Cause I remember, um, someone asking me a question and I basically said, it's not, you know, it, the, the, the risk is, is really, really low, but I've made some trite statement that I can't find, um, that I thought was funny. It was like a good, whatever the quote was, I made myself laugh, uh, which is always the most important part of doing any media work. Um, but, but 
Daniel, your question was really about like, uh, I, I think, do I have stuff in my mouth that I can put into that water glass and then, and then it sits and, and grows? Um, and so the, the quick answer is, yeah, you, you do. Um, but if it's in your mouth from a food safety standpoint, you're already likely to be consuming it. Um, and so where, where this gets like, kind of like kind of fun, I think is if, if you were, um, if you were shedding some sort of a pathogen and we usually don't shed them in our, in our, um, saliva, but you had vomited. Okay. So let's walk, walk, walk through this with me a little bit. Uh, walk through the vomit with me. Walk through the, <laughs> right the there, vomit. right there with you. <laughs> yeah. Right. So, so you're, you're sick, you vomit. <laughs> Um, I, uh, you know, typically, uh, when I vomit, I want to like brush my teeth and, and get the vomit taste out, but maybe you take a, a, a swig of water, um, from the cup that's, uh, that you, that you got. And then it's, and then it's sitting there and then someone else comes along and gets, uh, you know, grabs that, a, a cup of that water. And, um, you know, there's a, there's a possibility that you might get some, some growth, um, depending on what the pathogen was, but, but really the, the factor is the vomit, right? Like, so, so if you're sick, um, you're, you're more likely, and, and I would say it's a minimal increase in risk, but it's, there would be an inter- increase in risk, uh, of passing something on to someone else. You're not likely to reinfect yourself because you've already, whatever, you know, whatever, whatever pathogen you've got, you're, you're already getting, you know, sick from, uh, th- that would grow in that water and become more of, more of a problem. Yeah. And, and from, from the point of view of vomit likely to cause illness, that of course makes me think of norovirus, which won't grow in food or in water, but it will spread. And so to, to your point, Ben, if somebody else were to come after you and drink out of that, uh, uh, uh glass, they would, they would be a risk. Um, and certainly, and again, with one of our favorite outbreaks to talk about is the, uh, the, the girls soccer team where somebody was storing some snacks in a reusable grocery bag in a bathroom where somebody had a vomit event that was related to norovirus, and then uh, later on, those snacks in that bag were handed out to people that got sick with norovirus because of the the vomit particles basically getting over and getting onto that onto that bag and onto that food. I, yeah, <laughs> I, I think about that um, the most. When you think I, about that outbreak the most all the time. <laughs> I think about that outbreak. It's, it's on my list of favorite outbreaks to think about. But I'll, I'll tell you when I think about that the most is when I go into, um, like when I go to a hotel room, cause it was an o- hotel room linked, uh, outbreak and I leave my toothbrush out on the counter and I, <laughs> this is my little, uh, world of paranoia. I, every <laughs> once in a while we'll think, did someone who was cleaning my room maybe vomit and then their vomit particles just end up on my toothbrush? Like maybe I should rinse my toothbrush before I, um, before I use it, not, not just like apply the toothpaste and, and then apply a little bit of water, but actually like rinse it. And I do like, I'm, I'm weird in a, and I don't do that at home. I do it in a hotel room. Cause I don't know what happened when someone was there, when my, my, when my toothbrush was just sitting on the counter. Thanks to uh, a uh, an outbreak linked to uh, vomiting in a in a hotel bathroom. <laughs> That'll be with you forever now. It yeah. will, just like the Brussels sprouts. New lifestyle, <laughs> right? Like the Brussels sprouts. <laughs> um, so, sort of related to this question of uh, of the water and the maybe maybe the only pathogens that are likely to take up on the water are from my mouth. I saw, I realized a sort of extreme version of this is like on a hot summer day, we have like a um, Nalgene bottle or something. And you drink out of it and you screw the lid on and then you leave it in the hot car. Um, is the like 
level of whatever is growing in there can it can it get to a point where it's like it, because it's so much higher than what was naturally in your mouth it would suddenly be more of a risk um and then maybe sort of a flip on that is i kind of have a mental model of if something's dry then it's safe you know like um and I know we don't talk about safety here on the food safety <laughs> talk, but sometimes I'll look at a glass of water and I'll think, well, <clears throat> it's been sitting around for a while. It's so it's been around for so long, it's dry. And I think I, I envision all these pathogens not surviving the dryness. And I imagine you're you're all going to tell me that that's not a, that's not a um, reliable. Uh, safety predictor. Yeah. So, so couple couple of really good points here that I think uh, are bear bear discussion. So, first of all, water is not a very good environment for growing bacteria, right? Um, so that's unlikely. Uh, and again, there, if there's if there's you know if there's some the bacteria need food and water uh, to be able to multiply, right? And so, water contains plenty of water, but it doesn't contain much food for the bacteria. So, from a from a from that perspective, water is let's say much less risky than milk or juice or, or some liquid that has nutrients for the bacteria. <clears throat> but your second point about dry things being safer or maybe <laughs> less risky, for sure, right? So one of, the, one of the things that we know is that foods that contain um, sufficient moisture will allow bacterial uh, populations to, to increase. Foods that are dry don't allow that. Now, that doesn't mean that they're necessarily safe, right? We've had outbreaks linked to uh, peanut butter. We've had outbreaks linked to almonds, uh, to, to flour, uh, to raw flour. Um, and all, none of those foods will support the, the growth of bacteria. So, um, But um, they will allow bacteria to survive. And so if the raw materials are contaminated uh, at some point, um, they can eventually, you know, if, if, if consumed, again, depending upon what the shelf life is and, and survival rates and things like that, they can cause illness. So, so your, your intuition about dry things <clears throat> being re- less risky or, or safer than, than wet things is true. Um, and I would just say, you know, put in the middle of that mix, though, what about things that are liquid that contain nutrients versus things that are liquid that don't contain nutrients like, uh, like, like water or don't contain many nutrients like water? Right. Okay, uh, good. I, so to close the circle on this, I finally found the article that I really like my quote from. Um, and so I want to end on this. Uh, and it was from uh, an interview I did with Lifehacker. Uh, of course it was. Of course it was, right? The Lifehacker, those, those are uh, you know, the same people that have brought you um, using soap will help you get your, your dishes clean. Uh, Lifehack. Uh, and the title is uh, was written by a guy, uh, Nick Douglas, and it's the title was Water Doesn't Go Bad. And so... Um, he said, uh, um, you know, okay, this is news to me. I thought, uh, even though I got roasted by my editors for just learning this, I bet it's news to you. You can leave a glass of water out for months. And so as long as it's properly clean, properly clean, it's not going to make you sick. And the pull quote that he got from me from our discussion was quote, what would matter is <laughs> if like someone had poop on their finger and stuck it in there. <laughs> <laughs> to highlight Don's point of uh, you need to have some nutrients and some food for that bacteria. So poop fingers in a water cup, bad. Uh, no poop fingers in a water cup, and we're, we're fine. And the water's not going to rot. 
there's a lot of there's a lot of poop talk on this show. It's a little bit of poop safety talk. <laughs> well, you know, here's the here's the thing, Daniel. We we talk about poop and we talk about diarrhea and we talk about vomit because I think that that's part of the like if we're going to have discussions around around food safety and around risk, we have to be able to talk about those things, right? Um, it, it's it would be like if if you had if you had to do sex education class, but you couldn't talk about penises and vaginas, right? I mean, it's 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 part of the what we have to do to do the discussion. I think and and. To the extent that we can, um, you know, maybe gross people out a little bit, um, but you know, hopefully, if if you come here for the show, you're willing to put up with that. Although I did, yes. what was it? Merlin was saying something on Twitter the other day about uh, that that uh, they wanted on on whatever one whatever the show was. Oh, reconcilable differences. That 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 it that that there needed to be less talk about poop on reconcilable differences because that was <laughs> one place they thought was a safe space where Merlin wasn't going to talk about poop. I'm like, well, whatever. I mean, come on. Yeah. Uh, right, yeah. Right, right, right. What's Mer- what's Merlin's thing? Uh, the, the, the something about the coins, like oh yeah, the Merlin's law. Do you know this? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Maybe I don't need to say it. <laughs> Let people look it up. I, I wonder if you can Google it. Merlin's law. Uh, I, nope. Got Merlin's law group, but um, <laughs> it's pretty it, interesting. <laughs> there's well, he also has the the. Uh, <laughs> I think of uh, the corollary of uh, Merlin's law is, uh, uh, is something about uh, hotel rooms, items in hotel rooms. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> this is ringing a bell. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, Merlin's law coin <laughs> also does not does not bring up the correct response, but it does bring up a lot of interesting things. <laughs> ah, I know what to type next. Mm. Nope, that doesn't work. Anyway, uh, folks, you'll find it. You'll we've got to leave people with uh, wanting something, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, this is the, really the uh, food safety talk is just an appetizer for your uh, Google searches. Merlin's <laughs> <laughs> law. Look it up. You won't be disappointed. You won't. Uh, you won't. So, should we move on? Yes. Yeah. Oh, okay, you know what? So, sorry, somebody was tweeting at me about this. It's man's assumption. Oh, um, that's that's what that's what it's go. called. There so, so yeah, thank yeah. you, uh, random uh, Twitter user uh, James Sorensen, who was actually um, <laughs> it was my response to our Ben, our friend uh, Manan Sharma, um, uh, where I was talking about his original assessment of the safety of dishcloths, and so somebody misread Manan's original <laughs> assessment as as man's <laughs> assumption. So, anyway, <laughs> we'll uh, we'll try we'll try to link to uh, man's assumption. Oh, we will. Yeah, it's in Urban Dictionary, so perfect. Oh, excellent. That's yep. good. Yeah, and what's what's interesting to me is I don't know if Merlin Mann ever used the example of a coin. Um, so actually, Mann's assumption according to the Urban Dictionary is strictly the hotel room. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And I would recommend <laughs> linking to <laughs> the Hot Dogs Ladies Twitter post, which seems to be a definitive. Right. Uh, From the man himself. From the man himself. (laughs) And I don't know if I invented the coin (laughs) as a definitive (laughs) example of man's assumption, (laughs) but uh, it makes a really good example. Yeah, right, right, right. It's it's illustrative for sure. Well, so, okay, to not fully move on, this is one of those (laughs) questions that we do get about, like, someone going into a fast food restaurant or at a farmer's market where you're buying a bunch of food from the same person who's handling money. 
<laughs> and and there may not be hand washing in between handling a coin that has met man's assumption, <laughs> uh, and, and then handling handing you your sandwich or handing you um, the you know moving moving around the the tomatoes on the on the farmers market table, um, and it's. Uh, uh, the you know the the situation is um and from from the literature and we we've talked a little bit about this but but um if we look for bacteria on money it's it's out there do we find a lot of pathogens not not really um and and it you know it kind of ties back to um to what Don was talking about with the with, with drying is you know back, most of the bacteria that we worry about don't like to be dried and they die over time and then a couple of the bacteria that we worry about can handle being dried but it depends on the conditions on where they're they're being dried uh, and then they become a little you know more uh, problematic for us when they're in that dried dried area but but yeah water or not water uh, money's always it, it's 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 kind of constantly coming up um, because it's got this yuck factor uh, yeah. uh, situation with it I definitely think that's interesting and I've thought about that a lot the distinction between like hygienic and disgusting, right? <laughs> right. You know, like, yeah. right. Like, uh, whenever you rely solely upon like a hand sanitizer to make your hands clean to eat something, it's like, okay, well, I've got sanitized poop on my hands now. <laughs> right. Well, you know, and, and the way that we talk about that in, in the food safety world is, is we say you can't sanitize a dirty surface, right? So hand sanitizer is for sanitizing, but soap is for cleaning, right? And so that's why yeah, if your hands are clean, um, use a sanitizer by all means. But if you, if you have raw chicken juice or you have poop on your hands, well, get the poop off first, right? And then, and then use the hand sanitizer <laughs> right, if you want. Right. Yeah. We, um, we actually did a project on this, um, uh, a couple of years ago, and we'll link to this in, in show notes, but it was a, um, a paper on uh, consumer perceptions of the safety of some foods at grocery stores. And and so we, um, Don and I, we've, we have a couple of colleagues at, at USDA Agricultural Research Service, and we like to mention them in lots of our episodes. Uh, it's like a, a point of, uh, of, of fun. So John Lukachansky and Anna Portafed, who have never appeared on the, uh, there it is, never appeared on the show, uh, but I work with them a lot in, in my projects. They, they had this project where they visited um, like a ridiculous amount of grocery stores to take samples looking for listeria in delis. And, um, and so, uh, you know, for those of you who are like kind of new to the, to the world of Listeria, um, historically the deli area in a, in a grocery store was a place that, that we would expect to see higher, um, risk. And, and it's, it wasn't so much just being in the deli. It's just the types of foods that are there. Deli meats, uh, were, were, uh, sort of rose to the top historically as, as a place where Listeria would get introduced and you have slicers and you have deli, um, salads that are sitting there and they're being held for refrigeration temperatures, but the Listeria can grow anyway. So, so, John and Anna's team went to like, I don't know what it was like 60 or 80 or 200 grocery stores to grab all these samples. And when they were doing that, they saw a bunch of things that they thought could be food safety risks. And then they saw a bunch of things that could be um, like yuck factor, the disgusting kind of things. And they took pictures of them. And then they kind of came to my group and said, can we, 
like we we didn't we didn't take these pictures with any focus in mind. Can we write a can we do something with them? And so we tried to do some analysis on it, and and you know our limitation was it wasn't done in a way like we were just showing up at random grocery stores. But anyway, so but what we ended up doing was taking a, a series of those pictures and showing them to people and being like, what do you see in this picture? And, and, and then showing them, and then we made sort of assumptions on what we would look for in that, not assumptions, but we kind of would sort of detailed what we saw in the, in the, in the picture and things that were, um, that looked dirty. And the, you know, uh, the best example in, in my mind that I remember from, from this research was, uh, cilantro or fresh herbs that, that were sitting on a tray in the produce section that had just like decayed a little bit, like a little bit of spoilage and that, um, some of the leaves had fallen off of the, you know, the, the, the herb and it just looked unclean. That one ranked really, really high in, in, in a perception when we showed it to, uh, to these consumers as unsafe. Um, and, and, and it was not something that from our, you know, I guess expert assessment would be as unsafe as someone hand, handling food with bare hands or seeing tongs um, in on a self serve bar um, uh, with the tong handle stuck into the potato salad as opposed to the tong end, where it's like, oh well, someone came along and if they hadn't washed their hands, there might be transfer into the food. But but it's like the concept of like yuck factor or uncleanliness equaling safety versus actual contributing factors of foodborne illness. I think there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of gap there. It's interesting. You mentioned the supermarket because one of the sort of vague items on my list Mm. was maybe not so much of a question, but just kind of like an example of one of the things that plagues me as a semi paranoid (laughs) person and relates to food safety. Um, But, you know, there's, as far as I know, are no standards for, cleanliness of handling packaged foods right so like people were putting the, the for some reason the example that always comes to my mind is the like little bricks of cheese that you buy from the store and i think this has come up for me because i've come across people who um keep the cheese in the little brick after they cut it open like they cut off cut off a hunk and then like this is kind of like what I said about the avocado, right? Like uh, right, wash right. the avocado before you cut it open. Um, but I just imagine so much poop <laughs> on those cheese wrappers. <laughs> huh. So, and, t- so, so I'm having – so tell me – explain a little bit yeah. more what you're talking about because so this, this is – This is, this is a like, scenario. Yeah, okay. the, the, the supermarket employee who puts the cheese on the shelf – neatly arranges it so that you're going to want to go in and buy it. Right. They just used the bathroom like five minutes ago. Gotcha. And unlike a, unlike a restaurant where at least there's sort of like an effort to say you must wash your hands before you return to work, I don't expect that there's such a standard applied shelving prepackaged foods. Got it. So you're you're worried about the um, the employee touching the outside of packaged foods. Yep, and it right. all comes into my house, and I don't want to be a super weirdo who mm. washes every single thing I bring into my house. <laughs> right, right. You don't want to wash so, outside of your cheese package. Yeah. Right, and but yeah. the compromise I make is usually that I um, I open the cheese package onto like a cutting board, and then when I put the rest of the cheese away, I put it in a Ziploc bag. You know, my own my own plastic bag. But I don't. Maybe I don't take the effort to always wash my hands after I handle that cheese wrapper. It's just kind of a. It's just one of these things that's always kind of bugged me because 
I think it's a very obvious example of something that's potentially disgusting that's coming into my house on a regular basis, and I'm not doing anything about it. Yeah, so that's it's a that's a really interesting um, perspective. And what I ha- what I will say is that it, and I'm I'm doing a, a little a little bit of googling here, and I haven't haven't found what I'm looking for yet. But the um, I know uh, people have done research looking at bacterial contamination on the outside of meat packaging. Now, as a vegetarian, that doesn't directly impact you, but <laughs> what we do know is that these meat packages can leak sometimes, and there are there are risks uh, from that, but again, that's not so much the food worker as it is the package itself or the, the nature of the product itself, and that's why... Um, at, at my preferred grocery store, uh, which is Wegmans, uh, they will at the meat in the meat counter area. They will have um, hand sanitizer available, and they will also have overwrap. So I can, for example, pick up a package of meat using the overwrap uh, and or uh, sanitize my hands. And so that risk, which again has been quantified, and we do know that pathogens are present on the outside of those packages. It's not again, it's not as much as maybe on the inside on the uncooked meat, uh, but there but there are pathogens there. I don't know if anybody has looked at the outside of packaging generally. I, I suspect that the the risk is low, um, but certainly what you're advocating it maybe it's 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 edging <laughs> towards a paranoia. But it's certainly uh, from a common sense point of view, it makes sense. If there's something there, you you don't want to necessarily uh, bring that into your kitchen uh, and and spread it all around. It's not it's not something that we do in my house, but it's not there. There are probably. They're, they're probably worse than you could be doing. <laughs> well, I guess, you know, on the plus side, the cheese wrapper does, well, it has less of an opportunity to get really dry, right? Because it's kind of like probably condensing a little in the refrigerator section and then you get it in the bag and take it home and then you put it back in your your refrigerator. It probably doesn't really get bone dry, um, but it's kind of just interesting to me from that point of view of like, well, if there's something on there. I have a paranoid mind, like I said. Yeah. Well, and uh, let me let me throw two things into this. One is I've I've been, uh, and I'll see if I can find this, but I I remember um, maybe six or seven or eight years ago, um, New Zealand was dealing with uh, Campylobacter, um, so like a you know this pathogen that that we see associated with poultry, but they had like. 10 times the rate of infection of Campylobacter in New Zealand compared to everywhere else in, in the world. And so they sort of put together a commission or a plan on how to address it. And, um, and, and one of the factors that they, that they highlighted, um, if I remember it correctly, was packaging and the, the potential for, um, and again, this is, it's a little bit different cause it's not about in-store contamination and, and it's meat. So, uh, right. you know, it's a, you know, a little, a little bit different, but the idea that the packaging can be contaminated or, or ha- was, was potentially contaminated, um, at the packing process, like at a, at a, at a chicken processing plant and the, the, uh, you know, good controls and sanitation controls could lead to that. And, and people might've been doing a fairly good job at cooking their, their, um, chicken also might've been doing a fairly good job in controlling cross contamination, uh, from the, the like juice of the chicken or the chicken itself once they open the package. But, it, but as you mentioned, maybe not, um, washing their hands after handling the packaging. And, and it's, it's different because the, the, like it's not dry, um, you know, a, a chicken 
packaging uh, would tend to have some sort of you know, more likely some some juices around it just because of the way that it's that's packaged and, and the product inside of it is, is wet. But but it wasn't. I, I never really like got the the full like detail of uh, of data. But that was one of the things that they had, that they had highlighted. Um, the other thing that I'll that I'll throw at you that might lead to more paranoia is <laughs> here, here we go. Here you go. This is what you're looking for right here. Is that I wouldn't I, in this case I wouldn't worry so much about the bacterial contaminants of someone not washing their hands, but I'm more worried about the viruses because we've got a lot of norovirus um, associated with 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 people, right? Like it's our um, it's our number one foodborne illness uh, pathogen, and and so um, depending on you know it, there's a lot of seasonality associated with it, but but it's like you know 25 million cases or something of of norovirus a year in the U.S. And the, and and drying isn't really going to matter. So if I have norovirus particles on my hand, at, you know, I just didn't wash you know wash my hands well um, after um, after going into the into the restroom, and and I'm shedding that virus, which which I could be doing for a, you know a, a a a couple of weeks even maybe in low low amounts after. Um, I recover from symptoms as a you know someone that was that was sick. Um, I could be placing it on the um, on the packaging, and and this is one of the one of the things that you know that keeps Don and I engaged in our world for you know for the rest of our careers is just because we haven't seen any outbreaks from this doesn't mean it couldn't possibly happen. We just might not be good at putting the. Um, uh, putting the puzzle pieces together on it, it, it just isn't isn't something that has risen up. So so we need to focus on putting best practices in hand washing prior to handling packaged uh, products. But it, so so it's not to say that it's not you know not a risk. I think we can highlight a few where, places where it could be. We just haven't seen illnesses, yeah, yet, yet. or or maybe we'll never will. And maybe there's other factors on why we don't. I, I do. Um, back when I was in graduate school, um, I, um, I I remember. Our group got approached by a grocery store who had a uh, food employee that was uh, tested positive for hepatitis A, so another virus that would do fine with um, with drying. And they were concerned that you know this food handler had not touched or handled any um, unpackaged foods, but was primarily uh, involved, if I if I remember it correctly, involved in unloading. Boxes um, and packages that had been shipped in, mainly dry dry goods and, and frozen packages, and they asked the question of, um, you know, what what's the chance that someone deposited hepatitis A on those packages, and what's the survival? Um, and and so you know, I, I remember sort of researching this and, and and telling them, I don't, we don't, we can't really gauge on what the chance is, but it could sur- it, it would, it could definitely survive if it was placed there. Um, and I don't know, I don't think I ever found out what they ended up, what kind of risk management decision the company made on it, whether they threw out the boxes, which to me would be. Um, overkill uh, in in this case, I think the likelihood of it of it, of it being there and transferring um, uh, it was was probably um, you know pretty pretty low. But I don't know what they ended up ended up doing. But but I guess the like the reason why I tell the story is that that question is something that the grocery industry is in like they're actively thinking about of like how do I how do we keep pathogens off the outside of packages? Mm. So you think there's a good chance that at least at some 
grocery stores, they do have a policy of like washing your hands before yeah. you go back to shelf. Well, yeah, yeah. yeah. And in fact, I would say uh, it, it's not only would a grocery chain have a policy, it's probably also in the state food code that, that you have to, uh, even if you're handling packaged foods, you probably have to use the, the wash your hands after using the restroom, right? I mean, mm. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure that's that would be in every every state food code, and it's, it's probably in the FDA model code. E- even if you're handling packaged foods, mm-hmm. again, I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure without doing a little bit of checking, but there, I, I, that, that seems like a common sense thing. It's got to be there. Now, whether they're actually doing it or not, that's a different question, right? But the policy is there. Right. Yeah. So you've given me something to be more paranoid about and something to be <laughs> less paranoid about. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's um, important and- to change what you're paranoid about, you know, <laughs> over time. Yeah. And and eating those packages is not safe. Yeah. No, yeah. don't don't eat, don't, don't eat them. You're, don't lick you're them. A goat. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I and and this is one um, as well. You're in um, not to offset, but uh, Daniel, you're according to Twitter. I think you're in you're in Massachusetts, right? Yes, I, that, yeah. So Massachusetts is is really um, from a regulatory standpoint similar to where Don is in in New Jersey with. Um, like it's a home rules state, I think, uh, or at least has from my, you know, little cursory understanding of how it's regulated, uh, almost every, uh, health department could set their own rules and food code. So when you go from, you know, across County lines or from health department to health department, some of them may require in their code hand washing for packaged goods and some wouldn't. And I, I say that from experience here in my state, the a grocery store here is regulated by both the health department and the department of agriculture, um, where the deli, the cut produce and, and the, like the, not, not the whole agricultural produce, but like the cut fruit area, um, and the seafood and the butcher would be all regulated under the food code. But everything that happens in the middle of the store and those packaged goods, including frozen, frozen package are regulated by our department of agriculture. And, and Don here, we would not, the food code doesn't apply there. Um, they yeah, they would fall here under um, FDA good manufacturing practices, which would not explicitly say wash your hands before handling. It, you know, it's it's vague. Someone could could uh, apply that to them, but it's it's not as explicit as um, as what the food code does. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, and that's you know food safety policy talk. Because well, so 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 Daniel, if if you're willing to share, what are the grocery stores that you shop at? Because we might know somebody that could give you yeah. an answer as to what their policy. Oh, okay, is. yeah. Well, um, that's a regional chain in the Northeast, which maybe you're less likely to know somebody at Stop and Shop. Okay. Um, I think it's part of a chain, you know, a conglomerate, but um, and then Whole Foods, and then um a chain here in the Northeast called Shaw's, which is part of Albertsons now, I think. Okay. Um, so stop and shop. Good news on this is owned by Ahold Delhaze. And ah. we do know, um, their, uh, like, uh, VP of food safety or, or director of food safety. I can't remember exactly what his title is. So, so we'll do some follow up. I'm going to ask him. Uh, oh, yeah, that sounds lives, great. Yeah. yeah. Here in North Carolina. So, um, and is one of Don and I, uh, I think we we have a lot of uh, um, uh, we have affinity for uh, his, his name's Larry Cole. Um, and he'll be super excited that we mentioned him on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> Good. Yeah. Uh, hey, Larry, how you doing? <laughs> Arlington, Massachusetts. Stop and shop. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I'll ask Larry about it and see what they what they do and how they handle it. Wow, sounds good. Yeah, and we'll. Uh, I don't think Larry's on social media, but we'll uh, we'll link to his uh, profile on LinkedIn. 
It'll be so happy. In case uh, Shaw's or Whole Foods is looking for a, you know, very dedicated. <laughs> right, right, right. We, yeah. Hey, there's good people at Whole Foods too. Yeah, I yeah. know. Yeah. And Trader, Trader Joe's. Trader Joe's. We have Trader Joe's. Yep. That's uh, one of the one of the many places. You cool. know, I have to say, uh, Trader Joe's. I don't often see people at Trader Joe's that are handling food in a way that makes me as concerned as sometimes at uh, certain places. Huh. Well, and, you know, it's interesting you say that. I, I look at Trader Joe's as a different kind of grocery store um, compared to like a full service grocery store because they don't handle a lot of prepared unpackaged foods. You know, produce would be the would be the, the the area that that most most likely happens, but they don't have like a deli where there's a bunch of prepared foods that 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 makes it more complicated for food handling. Yeah. You know what it is? I think um unhappy looking employees look more likely to carry <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of times Trader Joe's Joe's employees just look particularly kind of upbeat. Huh. Well, so I mean, this this gets into a little bit of, of uh, an area that we have. Um, Don and I have talked about um, uh, is, and this is maybe a term that's new new to you, Daniel. But we we talk uh, uh, it's sort of a buzz term in food safety for the last fifteen or so years has been food safety culture, and and so the the basic concept is that. Um, uh, you know, a restaurant or a grocery store chain, you know, or a mom and pop independent, um, you know, butcher, whatever it is that there's, there's some, uh, there's some food safety culture. It could be good. It could be bad, but it's the yeah. way that, that organizationally they approach, um, their, their decision-making and, um, and best practices. <clears throat> so I tried to cough and then I hit the wrong button. Um, so, um, so with, with, uh, I, I have like, I sort of studied this a little bit and it's tied up in organizational behavior. And, and some of the work that was initially done on this was done at Disney where, where employees aren't employees, but they're cast members and they're like, you know, just uh, treated. There's a different philosophy of what they're doing. Um, and, and that there, there probably is something to, um, you know, happy to be their employees and the culture, not, not just the food safety culture, but the culture of, of a chain like, um, uh, like Trader Joe's compared to, uh, a, a place that doesn't emphasize, uh, as much what it means and from a value system to work for that, for that business. And, and I, you know, I, I think about, um, I think about Starbucks uh, as an example of this, just hearing, you know, hearing about Starbucks on other podcasts and, and about the, the culture and and what they what they try to create from a value system in their in their baristas right down to you know a term of barista as opposed to like you know coffee maker um, kind of, kind of situation and I don't I don't know anybody that works at, at Starbucks or anybody who works for them in food safety but um, but hearing about it that those things are wrapped up in in, in each other so I I, I could see. Um, the potential for if you really wanted to have a good food safety culture, having a good value system and culture uh, toward you know positivity towards the business is is gonna help, is gonna help. If someone's kind of pissed off to be there and and just looks grumpy um, and and is grumpy uh, about working, they may be less less likely to carry through with all the best practices around food safety. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll we'll link uh, to a review article uh, entitled "Enhancing Food Safety Culture to Reduce Rates of Foodborne Illness" uh, with a couple of people that uh, listeners might know: uh, Doug Powell, Casey Jacobs, and you, Ben Chapman. And me, I wrote a paper on that. I did. Nice. Um, cool. Uh, 
So what, what else, what else, what keeps you up at night when it comes to food safety, Daniel? (laughs) That's the question that I've stolen from Don. How how long, how long do y'all want to go? I have to prioritize my list here. (laughs) Well, we, so we, we usually go about an hour and a half to two hours. We've been going for an hour and 10 minutes, but we don't want to, we don't want to take advantage of your time. No, I'm in no hurry. I just want to make sure that I, uh, you know, if I, if, if you are chomping to get off the call, then I want to make sure I pick, uh, you know, I got to prioritize here. Um, <laughs> here's one that I, I, I anticipate is something you've talked about before. So it might be a little bit of a repeat, but, um, this, this has to do with cooked rice. Does, mm. does that tell you everything you need to know? Yep. Yes. This, yep. Yes. We're ready. A, We're ready. This is a famously, um, I think controversial question. Um, even not being tied up in food safety, academia, or industry, I have learned that some people believe under no circumstances should you ever reheat and then consume cooked rice. Um, and then some people think it's just no big deal and cook it up and you know, as long as it's hot, kill anything that's in there. Uh, I happen to have made enchiladas and beans and rice last night. And I have some leftover rice <laughs> sitting in my refrigerator that I will don't don't push me. I will eat this rice. <laughs> right right on right as we record. If we make if me we, eat this rice. Yeah. Um but I have to say I have always fallen into the kind of like, well, I read a little bit about it, something, something, even if it's like something can grow that's so bad that it can't even be destroyed by heat. And I've sort of just said, you know what? That rice is too good to let go to waste. I'm going to cook it up and and eat it. So talk me out of it. Yeah. So, so it's a really good question. Actually, I've been doing a little bit of Googling and this is, this is an issue that has been around for a long time. I found an article, uh, from 1974, uh, from epidemiology and infection. Uh, the article is entitled the survival and growth of bacillus cereus in boiled and fried rice in relation to outbreaks of food poisoning. So we've known about this for, for quite some time. And, and the elements of what you said are true. The, the key issue is how do you handle the rice after it's been cooked? And th- this is a particular problem that has been linked to uh, Chinese restaurants. And so what these Chinese restaurants will do is they, they serve a lot of rice. They serve a lot of fried rice. What they will do is they will cook up the rice. They will leave that rice at room temperature during the day um, uh, and then make fried rice from that cooked room temperature rice. And the specific issue is a microorganism called Bacillus cereus. Bacillus forms spores. Um, so it's, it's present basically everywhere. It could be in anything. It's certainly in, in rice. It, the, the hint right there is in the name. Cereus is, is uh, you know, the same root as cereal. And so it's associated with grains like rice. When you, when you cook the rice, you cause those spores to germinate. The, cells, uh, the spores turn into cells. The cells grow in the room temperature rice because there's adequate you know, food and uh, moisture there. Those cells, if they're left at room temperature for a long enough period of time, we're talking many hours, um, those cells will make a heat-stable toxin. And so um, so you, now you've got rice with lots of cells and lots of toxin. You take that rice and you cook it. When you cook it, the cells die, but the toxin remains because it's a heat-stable toxin. And so if you consume that rice with that toxin in it, you can indeed get sick. So the, the, so the, the answer is... it. 
depends on how you handle the rice. If you refrigerated that rice within an hour or two, or even three or even four hours of making it, um, you can reheat it and reuse it to your to your heart's content. Excellent. I'm going to have rice for dinner. Leftover <laughs> rice. Yes, you are. And I, I am, you know, uh, not only do I uh, subscribe to this, uh, I will also have some leftover rice for dinner myself. I will be reheating ri- rice uh, and consuming it uh, because I, I know that I cooled it uh, correctly yesterday and didn't leave it out uh, at room temperature. So, right. yeah, yeah, this is, that's a, it's a great question because I think this is another one that gets sort of like confusing, right? Like the, the issue isn't, the issue isn't reheating the rice, right? Like that, that's got nothing to do with the safety. And I think when people start thinking about, well, why, why is this myth out there? Why is this thought out there? And we focus on, on the reheating. We missed that the prior step of what happened to the reheating really being the factor, um, in this. And I think the, um, the message of don't reheat rice came from, um, a, a point in time where, we weren't doing a good job cooling rice, or at least restaurants uh, weren't. And and it gets like, you know, telephone game snowball into never reheat rice, say, you know, for safety. And and I'll, I'll I'll add another one that that is similar to that 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 Don and I both get questions about, usually from from consumers or from reporters or or whomever on this is um, if I've thawed my you know if I'm, I've got some meat and I've frozen it, and then I thaw it once. Um, but I don't want to use it all. Can I refreeze that, that meat or is that unsafe, unsafe to do? And, and again, it's, I mean, it's this, it's the same, you know, same, same sort of principle that I may have stuff that it has sat at the wrong temperature for, um, you know, and at the wrong temperature, I mean like above 41 degrees for more than, uh, you know, a series of hours, more than four hours, more than six hours, more than eight hours or whatever. Um, and that, that I'm growing some, um, some pathogens that are creating these, these heat stable toxins. But if I thaw that meat under refrigeration temperatures and then I refreeze it, I'm, I'm controlling for that, that toxin formation. And so the issue isn't about thawing and refreezing meat and can I refreeze it safely? It's about how well did I thaw it and under what conditions uh, is what happened before is, is what really matters. That's really good. Really good information. And I think my takeaway is actually maybe not eating any of the takeout rice. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe not. I mean, I'm going to eat it when I, when it, when it's quote unquote fresh, but it sounds like that's the stuff that, you know, so these heat stable toxins, they're not like detectable from like a sniff test or anything. Right. right. So no, right, right, right. But, Absolutely. But, but I can tell you, we get takeout uh, from a local Thai place all the time. And uh, you know, the rice comes hot and I'm assuming it's, it's hot and fresh um, and, mm-hmm. and not, and not reused or left at room temperature all day. Um, yep. And I will, you know, I typically will, will eat half of it with half my meal and then save the other half of the meal and the other half of the rice uh, for reheating. And it's, it's, it is perfectly fine. I would, I mean, and again, you you're, what you're hoping that your local public health is inspecting those restaurants and is ensuring that they they don't have this practice of, of leaving the rice. And I think I think the reason why they do it is that it's much easier to make fried rice from rice that's at room temperature instead of rice that's cold. Right? It's going to result in a higher quality product, but it's really just not not a best uh-huh. not a best practice. Right, right, right. All right, good. Moving on. Yep, let's do it. All right. Um, Let's see here. This one's. I'm going to pick this one next because it's maybe a little weird. Um, do does either of you have the same superpower that I have? 
<laughs> uh, okay, maybe, maybe. Two. This kind of comes with the sniff test thing I was talking about. Um, I read a long time ago about how nuts, when they turn rancid, create some kind of toxin. And well, the basic takeaway was that nuts turning rancid and creating toxins happens a lot faster and a lot more commonly than a lot of people know. And I have a, a, a feeling that I have a smell, a sniff test um, that's high, higher in uh, accuracy and sensitivity than most people. So I'm a person who, in my family, I will smell a you know bag of nuts and say, "Nah, these are these are gone. These are dead." And um, my wife, for instance, will not smell anything weird about them. And I have been maybe wasting nuts, but kind of working on this assumption that if I smell something funky. I throw it out. And um, so I guess I just want to get your take on the nut safety. Sure. So we're we're not toxicologists, and I did just a little bit of Googling, um, and I found an article on the uh, very reputable website called eHow, uh, which is entitled, What Happens If You Eat Nuts That Have Gone Bad? Um, and it sounds like, and again, we need to probably find a more definitive scientific reference. I mean, so, so certainly, certainly, let me just say, if you smell something and it smells rancid to you, don't eat it, right? And I, I do... I, my my real true super superpower is looking at images and seeing if they've been stretched or compressed, um, you know, out of uh, out of normal uh, normal uh, aspect ratio. That's my real true superpower. That just drives me up the wall. I can't not see those things. Um, but I do. I also do have a rather sensitive nose, and and in fact can smell um, things that are rancid that that my wife would say are are fine. And so so certainly you are entitled to throw away something that you think does not. Um, smell good if you don't want to eat it, right? Because life's too short to eat uh, bad tasting mm-hmm. foods. Um, um, whether, to what extent rancid, well, so so number one, it could be that you're just smelling the nuts and they are indeed rancid. And in fact, they're perfectly safe, but you know, why, why eat bad nuts, right? So, so um, but then the, the, the second question is, okay, how, how rancid, how oxidized do they have to be um, before it actually makes this uh, hypothetical toxin that I'm, I'm still trying to find in this uh, eHow article, which like you can't an aflo- see. So. Aflotoxin. Well, well, aflatoxin is different, right? Aflatoxin is made by the action of mold. And, and so okay. it's not rancid nuts. It would be moldy nuts and, and, you know, or moldy bread. Now, again, not. So aflatoxin is made by specifically by the microorganism Aspergillus flavus. That's where aflatoxin comes from. But um, uh, there are plenty of molds that uh, don't make toxins. Uh, and in fact, the general category of, of compounds that are made, the toxins that are made by molds are called mycotoxins. And so mycotoxins are not good. Aflatoxin is one example of not a good one, but that's different than rancidity. So to a, to a food scientist, rancidity is really a, a, some change to the oils um, and to oxidation of the oils, which could, could occur simultaneously with um, aflatoxin production or mycotoxin production, but, might, but is, could be independent from as well. Mm. So you know what? Um, you want to know something interesting about mm. me? Mm. Go. Yeah. <laughs> have heard, have, this isn't food. Hey, this might be food safety. I guess it depends. This gets back to the question of what is food safety. But um, speaking of nuts and the compounds that they produce, and maybe based on the oils that are in nuts, have you all ever heard of a syndrome called pine and nut mouth? I have not. Oh, pine. Pine nut mouth. So this is this this is something that I actually diagnosed on myself probably almost ten years ago, huh. thanks to Twitter. 
Whoa. And um, it was a phenomenal experience. I had some – I had suddenly one day I, um, I started feeling that everything that I was eating was acidic and kind of like – um, like I was rancid basically. And I would eat like a piece of bread. And I thought this, I said to my wife, this bread is bad. This bread has gone bad. And she's like, she took a bite. She said, you're crazy. That's not bad. I said, well, let me eat something else. I went and got like a cracker. This cracker has gone bad. And ultimately everything I ate, um, the toothpaste had gone bad. Whoa. And, uh, I ended up like having a glass of wine. The wine had gone bad. Whoa. And what what happened was, as far as I could diagnose again online, but this is a this was interesting to me, probably interesting to folks who would like a show like this. I had, I have a sensitivity that is, if you Google on pine nut mouth, you will find it yep. in a nutshell, so to speak. Um, there is a uh, um, there is like a variety of pine nut that until recently, like last 10, 20 years, has not been used in the United States and uh, Europe as a food source. Um, and I guess it's it's still, so to be clear, it's still not used in Europe. And this is actually interesting. Europe has not classified this food as food. Uh, but in the U.S., there's this, this like type of pine nut. And going back to um, Trader Joe's, this was a pine nut that I bought from Trader Joe's at the time. And you would know it if you saw it because it's unusually small. Hmm. If you've ever had pine nuts, you say, why are these pine nuts so small? Um, and it's because they're this breed of pine nut that was not previously used for food. Anyway, best I could make out online, um, something happens like in the oil that creates a kind of neurotoxin that affects your brain in such yeah. a way. Wow. That this is fascinating. Yeah. Kind of like um, he's kind of like those you know those fruits the super tasting fruits yep the, yeah so um, unfortunately the effect of this thing is that for a period of like well, first of all there's like an incubation period or something so I didn't find out I didn't have the effects until like two or three days after eating these pine nuts and then something happened on Twitter I complained about it and I was like what the heck is going on somebody said this is weird but it could be this. And I go to my pantry and I look at the pine nuts that I had now remembered were small and weird yep. looking. And they were like, um, you know, contains nuts from China, Korea. Um, there's like these countries and I, and I look up online. It's these countries where the um, species of pine tree grow that have previously not been used for food in the U.S. So um, th this was a really weird, interesting thing to happen. Now, as it happens, part of my quote unquote food safety you know, hygiene is I have to ask, um, does this pesto have pine nuts yeah. in it? And if it does, do you know if the pine nuts came from these Asian countries? Yeah. Um, and so it, it, interestingly, Trader Joe's, um, to their, to, so this is a, I really love Trader Joe's, <laughs> but if you had somebody, a friend at Trader Joe's in the food safety, I would want you to give them a call because <laughs> they, "Quote unquote," solved this problem by putting a label on all of their pine nuts that says, "Pine." Some people are sensitive to pine nuts. Basically, if you are sensitive to pine nuts, don't eat this. Um, Costco, on the other hand, uh, learned about this syndrome and they completely removed the the pine nuts, the affected pine nuts from their their menu, so to speak. 
So now I have the situation where I can't get pine nuts at Trader Joe's and I can't get pine nuts from any restaurant or deli or whatever packaged food maker that has sourced their pine nuts from these, um, these trees. And, um, I bet there's somebody listening to this who's going to be like, whoa, I had something weird happen once. Yeah. I taste, yeah. tasted that. And now you know maybe what it was. Um, and if you think it might have been that, stay away from those those tiny pine nuts. Oh, so, so yeah. So, so I've been Googling stuff. Ben has been texting me stuff. So I have to ask you, uh, Daniel, have you ever had yourself tested to find out whether you are a super taster or not? And does that, does that make mean anything to you when I say that? It means some, uh, the, the, the term super tester means something to me. I am under the assumption that I am not a super taster. Okay. Yeah. So, so basically uh, the, and, and, and the, the world, and I know this because I actually, the, the woman who's has the office next to mine uh, is a sensory scientist and she actually studies this. And so I've actually, I've been tasted. I know that I am a, a he's super, been tasted. He's been tasted. I, <laughs> I've been tasted. I've been tasted. He has been tasted. <laughs> um, uh, to, to know that I am a super taster. And so basically oh. um, you, if you, if you lack this gene, you're a non taster. If you're heterozygous for the gene, you have, you have one copy of the gene, you are a taster. And if you have two copies, you're a super taster. And basically it has to do with your perception of bitter taste. Mm-hmm. And uh, like, so people who are super tasters typically don't like uh, bitter fruits and vegetables or bitter, bitter, bitter vegetables. Uh, they also, uh, if they drink coffee, they drink coffee with, with sugar and or, or cream because of that, that uh, uh, super taster status. So basically to super tasters, things that might take a, taste a little bitter to somebody else takes really bitter to you. And so, and then that's consistent with that. And then we, we, there's an article here um, on, uh, that was published in uh, some journal. Um, uh, not, whose name I'm not finding, but we'll link to it. Um, the title is this, oh yeah, go ahead. A, a potential trigger for pine mouth, yep. a taste of a homozygous PCT taster. So, um, mm. or PT, yes, PTC taster. So anyway, so, and yeah, and so with this, this is a re- this is a real, I did not know anything about this. Oh. Um, uh, Ben Spen sent me a couple of great links, which we will abs- uh, absolutely link to in show notes. Um, and, uh, yeah, this is, uh, this is some fascinating stuff. So thank you, Daniel. This is, this is, this is great. Yeah, it looks like from from this article, this is published in in 2015, uh, and again, it's not definitive, but it looks like the introduction of this this nut species and its Pinus armandi, which is a different type of pine tree that we get pine nuts from. That does, as you mentioned, is uh, you know, typically cultivated in in, a, in some um, Asian countries. Um, that coupled with being uh, homozygous for um, for, you know, for PTC. PTC tasting um seems to be uh, a link here so it's so there's a trigger right like it's exposure to this plus um this uh you know the genetic makeup because it's not everybody that's eating these no. these pine nuts that are you know and it sounds terrible like it tastes like pennies oh no, it's the worst like- it's, yeah and I, I, it's like a bitter th- thanks for bringing up the bitter comparison mm-hmm. it is kind of bitter um but it is bitter and sour and like acidic and, and metallic it sounds like yeah, 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 metallic for sure. Uh, here's what's interesting, though. Um, I don't think I'm a super taster, especially if aversion to bitterness is an issue because I'm one of these people that prefers an IPA. <laughs> right. Well, and I don't, right. And yeah, I don't, and, and, for sure, yeah. yeah. But I also don't think that that is 
um, being a super taster doesn't always mean that you have an aversion to those tastes. It just means that you're heightened over others. Mm-hmm. Right? So, so it, it could be that, that this, that bitter taste, cause I'm also an, an IPA, uh, type person, um, that, that bitterness is what you're seeking out. You just have a, a greater ability to get it from, from other flavors that maybe, um, or other tastes that maybe, um, masking it. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. So one of my one of my kids is a super taster, and he's he's ten, and is a terrible terrible eater. Like, and he's gotten better over time, but he he really like there was about six foods that he would yep. eat, and and when he was four maybe or five, I mean, it just gets frustrating as a parent to be like, just eat, god damn it. Um, and and he would like literally like freak out, um, and and just like sort of report to us that that as much as a four year old can, like everything was really really spicy or everything mm. had, had these flavors. And so we, we, you know, we went to a food therapist for a while and helped them like get, you know, another eight foods that he could, could eat. But then they, they tested him and he was a, a super taster. And so for, for, as you get older, um, you know, sort of reading about this super tasters are, are, are folks that we, that we seek out because we often are able to, um, deal with complex tastes in a different way. Like people in the food industry from sensory aspects, like you can, you can highlight certain aspects of, of a flavor. But when you're a kid, that's really, really confusing and, and difficult to, to deal mm-hmm. with. Um, so anyway, it's, yeah, this is fine. I'd never heard of pine nut or pine nut. Oh, it's, and it's so like, interesting. It's so weird. Yeah. And, and it, um, it looks, it looks like from Wikipedia, there are lots of different kinds of pine nuts. Like there are this like old world and new world and, and different, right. uh, they're all, they're all genus pinus, but then different species. And yeah, this is, this is absolutely fascinating. And, and I'm, I, I'm, in th- and thanks for, for letting us know about this. I'm a huge fan of pine nuts. We eat a lot of pesto and, uh, this is just really good to know about. So what you need to do, Don, is try and get some of these uh, Trader Joe's uh, pine nuts and tiny, then we'll tiny nuts, tiny I'm, tiny white ch- uh, Chinese pine nuts. I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna not do that. <laughs> go ahead, not, go ahead and not take that risk. Oh, yeah, here's here's what I didn't mention. You might have already seen it uh, googling for this, um, but the symptoms sometimes last two to three weeks. That right? Yeah, horrible. yeah, I did see that. Yeah. yeah, and and mine was uh, probably until uh, it, it was one of these things. Ooh, it, it it probably went away within two weeks, but then it kind of left like a lingering sense. And that was like the real like feeling that it messed with your brain a little bit. You know, it was like a little bit of a lingering sense of that taste maybe for several weeks. And yeah, it's been enough that every once in a while I'll take like a leap of faith and I'll get some pesto and I'll say, what, whatever, if it has it, I'll just deal with it. But um, for the most part, if I can identify it, I'll, I'll steer clear because it is really – uh, here, here's what it is. It's one of those things where somebody's going to be like, well, that's great if you're on a diet. It really would be if you really want to have a zero calorie <laughs> diet. Um, but, you know, that's it was really hard to um, to eat anything yeah. that whole yeah. that whole two weeks or so. Yeah, that's that sounds yeah, really that's terrible. sounds really I'm gonna terrible. Up, I'm going to dig up my tweets from back then. Um, I bet I can now because it's funny. You, you remember back in the day. You couldn't search your tweets reliably, right? Because right. Index them all, and so like all this stuff from two thousand seven, two thousand eight, um, was just lost. And I bet I could find it now. And I'm gonna see if I can find the person who uh, who gave me the heads up on on the even the existence of this thing. But it was a really good example of 
kind of crowdsourcing, you know, not really a good idea usually to crowdsource your diagnosis, but I think it was, it was definitive when I added up the symptoms and the fact that I had these nuts and that they weren't in the industry that long. It's just very interesting. Yeah. Well, it, it highlights a bunch of things, right? The complexity of the food industry and unintended consequences. And then also just like the amazing thing that is this thing called the internet that we can just like look all this stuff up now and then and now go out and share it on a podcast. I mean, it's just, uh, it's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. There's, uh, so this like, yeah, I'm always, uh, interested in the the regulatory aspect of this and and something you said Daniel about like Europe doesn't look at it as food there's I'm gonna try and do some more digging on this myself but um, there's an article in the Telegraph from the UK um, that that says something uh, about this so, and, and so I'll read from this and we'll link to this in show notes it says now China which supplies most of the world's pine nuts has admitted some exporters have been mixing the pinus um, I guess it's Coralianus uh, variety with the cheaper but inedible Pinus armandii. And the latter are deemed, quote, unfit for human consumption by food safety experts at the European Commission. But the lack of long-term harm means regulators have stopped short of a recall or ban of imports. And so um, – that's it's really like interesting on how FDA regulates things and what the European Commission would would they you know they they kind of oversee um, individual nation food safety um, guidance they provide guidance essentially so mm-hmm. I, I want to look into how like why you know, why would you know why, how did FDA establish that these were okay versus what what the European Commission is because it doesn't sound like this is like you know, one in 10, you know, it mm-hmm. doesn't seem like it's, it's all that unique. Like there's lots of reports of, of this, you know, in, in one article I saw was, um, you know, uh, 10 to 15 reports of pine mouth a month in, in the UK, which is, a, that's a lot. It's a lot of people dealing with this. Yeah. I think what I have my vague memory of it was something like in the 20% category of people who are wow. vulnerable to it. Um, and that just made me wonder, like, do people just experience this and have no idea what what went on? Because if I didn't have Twitter, it would have just been this story I had that once I my taste went weird, you know? Yeah. You know, I would, <laughs> right. have, would have never linked it up with – I might have thought, like, I had a, a weird cold or sickness messed with my sense of taste. Um, but, no, and it's one of the sort of interesting things to me is the change of the food landscape, and it's kind of like – it goes it goes along with what I said about Trader Joe's, I think sort of shamefully putting it on the consumer, saying like, you know, some people are sensitive to pine nuts, but the change of the food industry caused me to go from being a person who is 100% fine with pine nuts to a person who has to be cautious everywhere. Right. And that's just because of a change in food uh, standards, you know? Yeah. And sourcing, so, right? Like, like, and right. the, yeah, I mean, it's constantly something that, that I, you know, I think the food industry is, uh, is grappling with is, um, how do we get, uh, similar products and, and have them, you know, with a, with, with better economics, right? Like maybe it's, maybe it's not exactly the same pie nut, but it does the job. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, so yeah, no, this is definitely food safety talk. Yeah. You're, yeah. You nailed that one. Yeah. And so, and I did a little bit more Googling here, uh, looking for FDA and I found an article from NPR's The Salt, which actually links to some research that FDA has done. And again, I'll just, I'll read, uh, I'll read to, to you from the NPR article and we'll link to the, to the science. It says, uh, 
FDA found that most of the pine nuts sold in the United States come from a mix of species, including P. armonii, confounding the chemical analysis. Um, so, uh, and what basically, what? let's see, what's the punchline here? So, according to this, the article in the Salt, there's still no firm evidence that P. armonii is the culprit. Um, so, scientists uh-huh. at the U.S. Food and Drug Administration tried to solve the mystery by running pine nuts through a GC, testing DNA, uh, 45 samples, including 19 that have been associated with cases of, of a pine nut mouth. So uh, according to the the article on the salt, um, the seeds are hard to tell apart just by looking at them. So um, that's not consistent with what what Daniel was saying about the the seeds being smaller. So um, anyway, it looks like, uh, yeah, and we'll we'll also, we'll reach out um, to some of our friends at FDA uh, who are not, uh, who, who are, who are microbiologists, but, but maybe know the, the scientists that are, that are tracking this, the chemistry down. So, yeah. Cool. Good stuff. Yeah. I'm glad you, I'm glad you prioritized that one. That, was, that, <laughs> that wasn't on my list. That, so that was uh, good. Um, that came up just because of the talk about uh, the super smell and stuff, the rancidity. Oh, cool. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, what's interesting, another thought that came to mind about the super smell, now I've, now you got me curious, Don, whether I'm somehow a super taster and um, I need to find that out. But, um, you know, I do have this identity of being a super smeller, like I mentioned, with the rancidity. <laughs> uh-huh. And the other thing, the other thing that I'm a super smeller about is um, avocado overripeness. Mm. Ooh, okay. So, I don't know. Uh, I actually tried to Google this a while ago. I was trying to figure out whether this isn't really food safety because I don't believe the the avocado is bad for me. It's just disgusting, right? And it's funny because I'm a, I'm the type of person who is the biggest avocado fan in the world. I grew up eating avocados in California. I know mm-hmm. how to shop for them. I know how to prepare them. I know a lot about avocados. And on top of all that, um, if the avocado is slightly underripe, it's disgusting. Yep. It kind of has a soapy, yep. kind of like the cilantro taste. Even I, and I can withstand cilantro taste. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if it's a little bit too ripe, it has, I don't know, it's a smell that I've smelled in other produce. Hmm. Um, but I smell it like very clearly. And it's like I have a detection for overripe <laughs> avocado. Hmm. So just, that's not just, a food safety thing, but yeah. it's just one of my weird things. Yeah, you're just a sensitive guy. Yeah. A sensitive guy. Well, and the as I Google a little bit about over uh, avocados, overripe avocados, the you know, the internet, which is always right and always wrong, has things like, oh, if you have an overripe avocado, don't eat it because you will get sick, to um, don't worry, you can eat all the overripe avocados you want. Um, and <laughs> so pick, so, pick your, pick your uh, solution. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I don't like, I wouldn't call this a, uh, a superpower. I do have sent, you know, sensitive smell, um, abilities, but it really has to do with, uh, trash and I can walk into my house and I can tell oh, yeah. like the second that I even get into the garage that I need to take the trash out. Um, and then I often will, it'll often lead to, uh, gagging on my mm-hmm. part. And, uh, I have vomited more than once from, uh, wow. t- smelling yeah. trash. Yeah. Well, we're just but I don't, sensitive I, guys. Three sensitive, lots of, yeah, sensitive <laughs> smellers, three sensitive guys here. Yeah. Uh, cool. Oh, that's awesome. Huh. Uh, uh, right. what, else, what else you got? Ah, I can keep going. Um, let's say what. Let's we're coming up on on four o'clock or four oh, yeah. o'clock. We're coming, we're coming yeah. up on two hours, uh, so it's an hour and forty minutes. So why don't we do one more and then uh, and then we'll let yeah, you yeah. go. That sounds good. I'm gonna pick. Uh, uh, um, 
I think I'm going to go with, this actually relates to something you guys talked about. Um, you talked about this plastic cutting board, you know, risk assessment and, you know, a school district, when do you get rid of them? Yep, yep, Having yep. some kind of strategy for r- mitigating the risk of an old cutting board. And, um, this is sort of in the category of differences of paranoia between my wife and I, because my wife found a used wooden cutting board. And, um, my instinct would be to never use a wooden cutting board whose provenance was unknown. (laughs) Yeah. And so I guess I want to know, is there something I can do to this wooden cutting board that will render it 100% safe without damaging the the wood? Well, there's no 100% safe, Dan. Oh, yeah. <laughs> render it 100% uh, somewhat. Well, no. What you're asking is, is there some process whereby you can lower the risk associated with this cutting board of unknown provenance? Um, so, I, well, so... Wouldn't what food safety people will say is that wooden cutting boards uh, are fine for well wooden cutting boards that you know the provenance of are fine <laughs> for um, cutting bread um, or or you know things that well and again if is your whole household vegetarian if I might ask it is not however okay. my wife who is the omnivore does respect um, she has a special cutting board. A special plastic-based cutting board for meat. Right. And, and I would say that's a best practice whether you have uh, vegetarians in the house or not, right? And mm-hmm. so, so certainly using plastic cutting boards for meat is, is, a, good, is a good practice. Wooden cutting boards, um, again, and the research gets complicated and we, it would be a whole uh, you know 45-minute deep dive into the history of wooden cutting boards and Dean Cliver's research and all of that. But, so we won't do that. Um, so I would say generally speaking, wooden cutting boards are fine as long as you're not using them for meat. How how you would handle a wooden cutting board that came from some unknown source, I suppose you could figure out some process to plane it down and get to a level uh, a level of the cutting board that had been previously unexposed to any contaminants. Um, you know, I, I don't think there are any, I don't know of any best practices, you know, short of, again, planing the wood. And then you'd have to ask the question, well, how, how much do you have to plane the wood to get to get down to that fresh level? So I, I, I'm at a loss for an answer. Ben? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, I don't know how, how science-based or effective this would be, but I would um, maybe sand it uh, to take the the top level level off, and then something that is is a traditional um, treatment for for cutting boards that goes back to um, sort of you know hundreds of years of, of butchery is is adding some sort of salt to it to to draw any any moisture that might be inside the cutting board out. Um, and know from uh, working with a, a colleague here um, at NC State, Dana Hansen, who does um, he's my, he's my meat guy. He's a meat scientist. Um, that's you know, there. There is some uh, well understood uh, practice on making a cutting board smell better by by salting it. Um, and you know, and that just drawing those those any any liquids that might be uh, in there that um, that are leading to uh, growth of something that might be creating some some off odors. Uh, but it, but again, I wouldn't I wouldn't know. I I, I think it's really low risk. Um, I wouldn't know how to demonstrate 
that there's effective way to to lower the risk, um, and, and you know, in, in, in by looking in the in the literature on it, right? And I, I assume something like dousing a wooden cutting board in bleach or something would be more of a risk of getting bleach in your food than. I, like, yeah, the bleach is not like it's not going to stay around very long. And in fact, dousing a cutting board with bleach, just the way that that bleach acts, um, it's going to bind um, to the organic matter that's in like the wood itself and and make it so it's not a very good sanitizer or disinfectant at that point. So it's uh-huh. it's probably not going to do it's not it's probably not going to lead to bleach in your food, but it's also probably not going to do much in in making it any any safer. And it might make the cutting board all discolored. So Yes. And, right. then, and the other thing I would say, you know, you could take the cutting board and if you have an automatic dishwasher, you can you could wash it, but again, that's not recommended for wooden cutting boards because then the water gets in there, so Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think you're 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 down <laughs> to uh, either trusting that it's okay, or you know, s- planing or sanding down the the surface. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I will link to. Well, uh, just for the record, I would never take. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. For the record, I would never. For the record, I would never take a, a wooden cutting board off the street <laughs> myself. But um, you know, gotta gotta get along with everybody and. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you know, and and would you would you take uh, would you take a mattress or a chair? You know, no, I, I don't think no, so. Well, so I would take a, I would take a. Here's where I'd, here this is where it comes, <laughs> comes down. To. I would take a wooden chair over right. an upholstered chair. Yep. yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I wouldn't prepare food on the wooden chair. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, absolutely. I'm going to link to a paper that I've. Um, I've talked about before, um, which I think is, is the best one out there, uh, that, that talks about wood and contact with food. So it's, uh, an article that was in comprehensive reviews in food science and food safety. It's, uh, um, by, uh, Aviat and, uh, and colleagues, uh, microbial safety of wood in contact with food, a review. And, and it's a, it's just, it does a nice job of talking about how wood is used in storage. It talks about cutting boards, um, and in sort of traditional ways, but they highlight in here that, um, that there are maybe some theoretical risks. There's, there's not been any good epidemiological evidence or, or any other, um, you know, links to foodborne illness associated with wood, wood food contact surfaces. So we're, you know, we're, we're, we're in the low, low end risk stuff, even, even if you wanted to make, uh, some food on that wooden chair. Yeah. Well, that makes me feel, that makes me feel better. I feel good. And also, also here's the other thing. I didn't mention this, but things like sanding it down, um, I can't do because, it will be evident that I am a paranoid psycho. <laughs> true, true. It, yes, okay. <laughs> so it'll suddenly be like, hey, uh, that cutting board I, um, you know, I picked up, uh, why is it suddenly smooth? <laughs> Yeah, I, I resurfaced it for you. Oh, I'm, honey, I'm starting. I'm starting a new hobby. I'm starting a new hobby of woodworking. <laughs> and, and, and also, you know, it's not like she didn't do anything to it. I'm sure she washed it. And also, part of her process was she put some kind of like bees oil, beeswax, something coating on it, um, which not well for for the one for on on the one hand i think maybe does have kind of like a prophylactic effect on the other hand i would be undoing all of that work she did if i right, tried right. To, tried to do something yeah it's true 
Yeah. yeah. Well, so, if she if she ever if she ever listens to the podcast and wants to come on to defend herself, okay. <laughs> we'll make the offer to, to have her on anytime. <laughs> yeah, and I hope that I uh, I hope that I painted it in the right light, which is that I'm kind of the weird one here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, no worries, no worries. <laughs> <Me>? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Oh, awesome. Well. Daniel, I mean, thank you so much for um, for reaching out and, and joining us. This has been a really enjoyable conversation, and what a nice surprise. Um, yes. as, yeah, Don, Don and I were exchanging texts yesterday, um, and uh, we were talking about you know timing and, and what, what might be happening, and he's like, I have a surprise for you. And, and then he said, do you want to know the surprise? I said, no, I don't. I want it to continue to be a surprise, so I'm glad um, you know, I'm glad it was. Uh, and it was, yeah, this is great. Great chatting with you, and, um, and thanks, thanks for all your questions and thoughtful, um, thoughtful remarks, because I think it made for a really, a really interesting show today. Thanks so much for having me. And I'm really glad, uh, you know, I was a little anxious, as I said, that some of these might be just obvious repeats, but to the extent they were repeats, I think we got some, we got some new, uh, some new lines of thinking on them. So really fun. And, uh, I, I have to say, I come out of this, I think with a little bit more reassured about some of the things that were running around inside my head. And, um, Except for the pine nuts, scene. I'm still freaked out about them. Well, yeah, yeah. No, here's the thing: I did a little bit of a little, little bit more searching, and there's been a bunch of research on it. And and we'll we'll. It looks like we still haven't figured it out, but but rest assured that there are a lot of smart scientists working on trying to figure out what's uh, what's going on here. So, uh, and if yeah. you. If you read the show notes and you find um, any of the articles you don't have access to, let me know, and we'll, we'll get you. If you want to read the original peer-reviewed research, uh, we'll we'll be happy to send them, download them from our libraries, and send them to you. <laughs> Excellent. Cool. Well, I think that's a show. Um, yeah. Thanks again. It's my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's 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 been really fun, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tune in and keep my food safety. Uh, excuse me, food mitigation. <laughs> risky. No <laughs> risky, risky talk. food business. Risky food business. <laughs> awesome. All right. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Daniel. Be well. Okay. Bye, guys. Bye. Awesome. Thanks. That was that was great. Yeah, it was fun. Oh. Oh.
You still there, Don? Nope, I'm still here. Okay, good. Daniel, you're still there? I'm still here. Oh, perfect. Do I need to hang up on you? Um, um, I can do it myself when the, when the time is right. But um, before I do, I know you said uh, you probably don't need or want my audio, but I did record if it becomes important to you. Oh, awesome. oh thank you. I think I think everything was good. I did hear at one point uh, Ben's audio got a little bit weird, um, but that was only for one one second. So. Okay. Cool. I'm just going to keep the audio file around until oh, yeah. the show comes out, yep. and then uh, you let me know if you need it. Awesome. Thank you so thank much. You. All right. It's great time with you guys. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. Cool. cool. That was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. So he's, he's somebody that I um, have followed on the internet for a while. And then uh, he was actually started following me on Twitter at some point. And uh, yeah, he's just a really, really thoughtful just a just a nice guy. So, and again, part of this uh, world of people that uh, I know <laughs> ultimately probably traced back to Merlin Mann from one connection or another. So, uh, yeah, and and yeah, really, really, just uh, really. I mean, I, I, the people, you know, people that that I I have found people that people that work as independent software developers, they they kind of have a mentality that makes them unsuited for any other work, much like professors. <laughs> yes. You were kindred spirits. Yeah. And well, and just like, a, uh, I don't, I don't know, just a thoughtful way of looking at things, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, they, like, cause they really, they really do think, think things. I mean, this is why I enjoy listening to tech podcasts like, uh, like ATP and stuff is that they really do. They really do think things through, um, in a way that, that I think academic scientists in, in particular appreciate. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and it's, it's always fun, um, stepping out into a conversation with someone who, who we don't interact with all the time. Right. Like that right. just like, I've, I find that really fruitful to help me think about things in a different way. And, and, the I mean, the pine mouth thing is this, this, that whole yeah. thing's fascinating. Yeah. How do we miss this? Like, I've, I've never even heard of it. And this, it seems like it's right. And like, I could see one of the things that we didn't talk about is, um, it, it sounds like it, 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 the, the initial symptoms are similar to, to the botulism symptoms, right? Like numbing and metallic taste, um, yeah. which is something that people have reported at, you know, soon after being exposed to Botox, bot, 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 tox, not Botox. Yeah. Right after you get Botox, you get pine nuts. <laughs> yeah. You know, and there, there's an article, like one of the articles we'll link to is from food control, right? Which is a journal that I regularly scan the table of contents. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and we, we should, we should reach out, um, and find out from, from Mickey at L, um, if what FDA is doing about this, it looks like they are doing some stuff, but they probably also need to move carefully so that they don't, I mean, it would be easy to say, oh, it's just this one species, but it sounds like maybe it's not so easy to say that. So, right. Yeah. Right. Well, and it's, it's, it's fun and easy to win a trade war too. And it could, <laughs> could lead to that. Yeah. Trade so. wars are good and easy to win. Easy, and I think yeah. we're already in a trade war with China, aren't we? Right. Right. So, so we, should, I, I don't know, maybe this isn't, uh, it's not in our arsenal, our trade, <laughs> trade war arsenal. Uh, um, oh yeah, that was, that was great. Cool. Um, awesome. Okay. So this one's, this one's yours. Yep. And, um, we're on like a roll here. We are. Damn. We're just like, we're recording all left and right. Um, what's your, okay. So I guess we're looking at the week of the 26th. Yep. I've got, I've got quite a bit of freedom that week. Um, 
I have what? What do you have? Are you traveling at all? Do you have other? No, any I, that's uh, the week before classes, and so now that I'm graduate program director, I, I hang around so I can meet with students and stuff. So, cool. Um, so I'm like wide open on the 29th. I have nothing on my calendar. Uh, the 28th, we I'll be there's a food safety meeting that our ag commissioner puts on every year, so I'll be at that. On the 27th, um, I could do the afternoon. Yeah, let's do af- afternoon 27th. Okay, perfect. Yeah, and that's, we have writing buddies that day, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and I, I, uh, I could really do any time after noon, and I don't have any. Um, there's nothing on my calendar here. All right, let's let's say one o'clock. Yeah, let's say one o'clock, and then if I need to pick Jack up, I think he starts. That's his first day of school, maybe. Then if I need to pick him up from school, uh, I don't have to. I would have to leave here at like three twenty-five, so that's plenty Perfect. of time. Perfect. Yeah. Um. That's 191. Whoa. Holy. Almost to 200. Almost our bicentennial. It's coming up. I can't wait for the sesquicentennial. <laughs> I think we had that conversation. We did. The, the Dobra, Dobra centennial. Because I, I looked up an article. Or yes, on what, the, on what the thing. The, thing, I was, the, the water. I was trying to find the yay. Oh, man. Don't put your poop fingers in the water. <laughs> That's when I know I've done too many interviews, when I start telling people that. Well, I don't know. You get your pull quote. Yeah, I did. I did. Um, awesome. Okay, cool. Um, so I think I, yeah, I only really captured Tiny Nuts as a, as a show title. Yeah, there are a couple other things I, that we Yeah, I got, I got a bunch of other ones, which I will, I will text you here. Okay, cool. Um, and then uh, I think I sent you everything that I was looking at. Yeah, and there, I was, there wasn't crazy anything. Some of the stuff. Yeah, there yeah. wasn't anything that uh, I, either you sent it or I, I, I captured it, so. It's down to a science now. Um, so Gordon does want to come on, so I'll okay. text him. Text now. him the time and date. Yep. Yeah, and let him know. Um, and and and, that, and yeah. Dan, the other Dan, Dan, Dan uh, Benjamin, Dan because um, I told him that we wouldn't know the date until after this recording. Yep. So he, if he's if he hasn't lost interest or gotten distracted, he may <laughs> he may text he, he may text me and ask to be on, and I'll I'll and, tell him, and then it's up to him and Gordon whoever gets back first, you know. That's right, and uh, he'll. It, what will be great about that is he uh, will maybe start following you on Twitter again uh, until you t- until you post a dog. Well, here here's the thing. Um, I, I am going to give him a hard if he comes on. I'm going to give him a hard time about that because I think I, that's that's nonsense. But I think know, it's he, I think it's hilarious. <laughs> Like I think it's I think it's the funniest thing that that he, like I read it as a threat of like oh in jest right like don't do that or Don I won't follow you anymore and it was so not a threat at all it was just like uh, post another picture of a dog and I'm I will never follow you I'm, or I'm not following you anymore and, and you know what? it's it's very funny because I I had stopped listening to Roadwork which is the show that he does with with Roderick um, but I recently started listening to, again and Dan was talking about like. Uh, how he is on Twitter and you shouldn't, ju- you shouldn't just take it seriously. It's just, you know, so I, I don't know. It makes me feel slightly different about him not following me. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Well, he didn't follow me for a while too. Like we followed hmm. me and then he didn't follow me hmm. and then somehow he started following me again. Hmm. Um, yeah. So I don't know. Um, yeah. And I speak to Twitter. I really like this, uh, the tweet storm thing that you can do yeah. with, uh, with drafts. It's, uh, oh. it's really cool. 
I was, yeah. I mean, I saw that, um, the sponge question come from Manon when I was, uh, I was just about to play hockey. So I'm like, Oh, I'm just going to be funny. And I'm going to be like, you know, here's a Swedish fish. Cause I didn't really quite understand <laughs> well, what that was about. There were a lot of, there were a lot, I don't know if it was late at night or if he'd had a few drinks, but there were a lot of typos. There were. And, uh, and so I was just going, um, like, yeah. So I, I, and then you did, you were much more thoughtful in your response. Well, I, I looked at, I also looked at it last night and I said, you know, I, 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 I have some things to say on this. Um, and, but I want to compose my thoughts. And so that was uh, what I did this morning as I procrastinated doing other work. So yeah, good. Awesome. Uh, what, uh, what are we going to do about Michelle Danilek being banned? She won't hear this, so we can just talk about it, but she, should we ever lift this ban? Should we put some like parameters on it or we just keep her banned? She, what's she banned from the listen to the podcast? Um, why is she banned? You banned her. You said you told Michelle you're banned from the pot. You can't listen to the podcast anymore. This was, oh, <laughs> I don't remember. Well, all right, she's know? unbanned. Oh, I've, oh, no, I've, no, I've, no, I've no, unbanned no. her. No, no, no. This is too, oh, no. This no? too easy. No, no, okay. no. So let me look, because have you not? You, <laughs> you know about this. I, really, I vague. The more we talk about it, the more I vaguely remember it. Okay, so this is this happened at uh, at the reception in Tim's room. Okay, and and you, I, I can't remember what caused it, but you you said, "Don't you listen to the podcast?" And she said something about, "Well, I'm not. I haven't listened to all of them." And you said, "Fine, you're banned. You can't listen to any of them." And, and anyway, <laughs> she said, okay, I got to go to Twitter because she had, she's now mentioned like hashtag banned a couple of times. Oh, uh, I do remember that she's mentioned that and I've, I've just been being silly about it. So, yeah. Yeah. So where, where was the most recent one? Um, oh yeah. It was last, uh, two days ago when I posted, uh, the, uh, episode 189, she replied almost, you know, I said, you know, here's the episode. She replied almost immediately and said, nope, still banned, <laughs> still hashtag banned. Okay. And then, and then your response was, you are hashtag, 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 <laughs> hashtag banned, hashtag LOL. Uh, and then she said, since my hashtag, hashtag, hashtag banning, I've decided to boycott. I may soon elevate to hashtag, hashtag, hashtag boycotting. Um, so I think we need to, we got to wait it out. I don't think you can just lift the ban. I, I think I can do whatever I want, but uh, I will. I will take your counsel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's. I mean, it's gone down this road of of hashtagging and banning and hashtag hashtagging. Um, so so anyway, but but I think we need to we need to call. We we got to keep doing something like just to keep this storyline going. Um, in fact, like when you post the. When you post the episode, if there's enough room in the tweet, you should say, like, tag her and say, you're not allowed to listen to this or something. Like, just keep this going. <laughs> okay. Or I will. I will. Well, yeah, you, you have to remind me. I, I will forget. Yeah. Hashtag banned. Hashtag, hashtag. Uh, okay, cool. Oh, yeah. We can, when we post the episode, we can say, hey, everybody, uh, this is a great new episode. You should all listen, except for Michelle, who's banned. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I'll, for, yeah. I'll forget, but anyway. And then she'll say, no, I'm boycotting. And, we'll, <laughs> and, and then you can't we'll boycott us, you're banned. Right, right, exactly. It's like, it's like quitting after you got fired. You can't, you can't do that. <laughs> We've already fired you. <laughs> you. You can't fire me. I quit. <laughs> exactly. Uh, exactly. <laughs> uh, all right. Cool. Um, I think that's it. Oh, oh, I have stuff for you. Hmm. Um, okay. Um, Meg, Meg, who listens to the show, Kirchner, hmm. um, has been, if you remember a while ago, 
this is like a, maybe not quite a year ago, uh, but you and I had a conversation about um, hand washing times in what we saw in our kitchen study and um, the CDC being um, open to having a conversation about changing hand washing scrubbing times. Mm-hmm. And do you remember any of that? Vaguely. That we were going to. Okay, so so one of the things that that you had said that you would be interested in doing is maybe creating a model based on time that we have, and we what we also have is um, transfer sites within the kitchen. Anyway, Meg's done a bunch of like data crunching to give you something to maybe make a model th- with. Cool. Yeah. So I haven't, um, she sent it to me uh, earlier this week and I haven't had a chance to go through everything. So I'm going to do that and then I'll send you send if there's, you know, I'm sure what she did was awesome. So I'll just, I'll send it to you Okay. Uh, to take a look at. Um, awesome. Okay, cool. Sounds good. That's it. All right. We'll talk to you soon. All right. Bye-bye. Bye.